<laughs> Members, you're all welcome to the meeting of the Justice Committee. And, and just before I suppose we, we started the debate business, and Peter, part of the committee staff, has moved on. So we want to just express our appreciation to him uh, for his assistance over the past number of months. Um, apologies are one in from Gordon Dunn, and then we have Gemma and Sinead joining us through the Starleaf facility. And uh, ask Christine if anyone has delegated the vote. Um, thank you, Chair. The Gemma Dolan has delegated her vote to the Deputy Chairperson Linda Dillon in the event that the Starleaf connection is lost, and Gordon Dunn has delegated his vote to you as Chairman. Thank you. Um, item two, then, is the draft minutes of the meeting that were held on the 22nd of October. And if members are content that they're a true reflection of proceedings, then I will sign them accordingly. Agreed. Agreed. Matters arising. Some items to cover. First item under matters arising is a response from the department in respect of the current COVID-19 situation in our prisons. Um, the department has advised that between one and twenty, between the first and the twenty-seventh of October, there's been a total of three prisoners and twenty-two operational uh, prison staff that have tested positive. However, the higher uh, rate of infection in the community is leading to more cases that are being identified amongst the staff members. Uh, within the establishments, they remain stable, safe, and morale is good. Governors have indicated that they have got the resources required to deliver the predictable and effective in-house regimes, and prisoners are generally understanding of and complying with the precautionary steps that have been implemented. Just, just update members on that. Um, item two is correspondence from the Bar Council in respect of the personal injury duty rate. The Bar has written in respect of this issue, um, saying that there is an urgent need to address the current rate, irrespective of the future legal framework, as it is uh, detrimental to individuals, as their cases cannot be properly resolved until action is taken on this area. The Bar notes <coughs> the Department's proposal to maintain the current rate until the new legal framework is brought in by way of an accelerated passage bill. Um, would still result in at least another year before the rate could be changed. Uh, the Bar cannot see the justification for the Department's continued failure to rectify the anomaly around the current rate in Northern Ireland compared to England and Wales and Scotland, and asks for the Committee to press the Department to change the rate in the interim before any legislation around a new legal framework. The Bar has offered to discuss this issue with the Committee if it is necessary. So, members, at this stage, I would recommend that um, we ask for a response from the, Depar the Department. Um, that we see sight of their response because the bar has written to the department on this, and we can consider that response together with the information that we've asked um, from the oral evidence session that we had with officials on the 22nd of October, and then at that point we can decide how to proceed. If members are content, we'll request a response from the department to the bar's concerns and pick it up um, when we get further information ourselves. Um, item three is just the committee forward work programme. <clears throat> There's an informal uh, discussion planned uh, around our strategic priorities, and that's taking place next Thursday. So, members, that information is there um, to note. Item four then is a response from the department um, around the committee's uh, concerns regarding the provision of information on incidents. So, the minister has responded. Uh, to the committee's request for information on the criteria that the department uses to decide when to inform it of any incidences 
and the proposal to develop an agreed approach or protocol advising off incidences and then important matters in a timely manner. Uh, members, the Minister has advised that she doesn't consider it practical or possible to define specific criteria against which the Department assesses what information to share with the Committee um, and when. She's also of the view that it would not be possible or necessary to develop a protocol. She is, however, committed to ensuring that where practical information on developing situations is shared with the Committee in a timely way. So, Members, that's the response from the Minister. Um, around the committee's request in this aspect. Are members content to note it? I'm not content with the substance of the response, but um, Doug, I know you had raised this last Yeah, week. I have, Chair, and, and, and I'm not content either. And the reason I'm not, I mean, we, we raised this because of the death of two prisoners in custody, but there are linked issues to that. Um, and that is why it's important that we understand when we should or should not be informed of a critical incident that has happened, even if it is done in the same way we were informed in regards to COVID in the prisons, which I thought was very good, that we should be informed in the same way if there's something critical that happens in regards to a death in custody. For example, let's imagine, and you'll know, um, Linda, um, if there was a death in police custody, would the policing board be informed immediately? Yes, they would. Um, because they need to know. Uh, and I think we need to know, because if we join the dots of everything that went on around the death of those two prisoners, we will suddenly realise that the day before the first death, serious concerns were raised about the levels of staffing uh, on, on prisoners the day before. And the week before the first death, there was a serious incident which left one prison officer in a house on his own prison house on his own. So if you join up all the dots, there's a fundamental issue aligned with these deaths um, in, in custody. And I think if we don't know in a timely manner, um, we can't scrutinise the, the, the bigger issues here. And, I, and I've got a, a wider issue in regards to night custody officers and the level of night custody officers, which are presently sitting uh, at times 10 below where they should be. Um, so I'm, I'm really not consent, um, Chair, and, and I don't know how we, we take this forward, whether it's a case of um, not having a protocol but having an understanding, you know, maybe a memorandum of understanding that critical incidents such as death in prison um, uh, or death in custody, uh, you know, we need to be informed, uh, even if it is done um, not publicly but, but, but privately. Rachel, and then I'll bring Linda in. Thanks, Chair. Um, notwithstanding what Doug um, was saying, I, I, for me, this brings into a, a wider issue of, of mental health and health in prisons. Um, and, and that's sort of so, something that I, I certainly would welcome information on in a sensitive manner um, if, if, if incidents like this does arise. But we do have to obviously um, be mindful of what families of, of these people wanted and, and one I'm aware of did not want information in public, but there is absolutely nothing to stop us being informed in confidence and all the members respecting that confidence and, and, and being aware of things rather than waiting for a report in a couple of years' time. Linda? I think it really, I mean, Rachel has, has covered the point. I do think that it, it should be shared, but I, I do absolutely think that it should be in confidence because of the the issues that have been outlined, particularly around families and sensitivities around families, because you know 
in this committee, I think we have been very focused on every piece of, of work, whether it's around policy, funding, legislation. We've been very focused on victims and those most impacted. And these families, at the end of the day, are would fall into, in some sense, that, that, that group of people. So I do think that we have to protect them. I think that we have to look after them. But I do think that it could be shared with us. I mean, even in council, for example, they have you know confidential sessions. And I have to say, I've never known in my time in council or even since I've come off of any confidential business that was breached bar one occasion, which it actually was a genuine accident where the member just didn't realise. So I think that things can be shared in confidence and members are not able to use that then because it, it is shared in confidence. You know, you're, you're bound by that and you can't use it in terms of press or or anything. So I understand that there could be concerns around that, but if it's done in confidence, then any member that uses it will be in serious trouble and with it unanswerable to this committee and to the Assembly for stepping outside of that. But I think there has to be a way of doing it because just so that we're aware of it even and that we're not blindsided and that we then can say, well, we acknowledge that was in confidence, but out of that, we would like to have a further conversation or we would like to look at this further um, because I'd I actually would be a wee bit more cautious just because I get what, what you're saying, Doug, and I, and I don't disagree in some senses, but I don't want to conflate those two issues because it would be wrong to do so. There hasn't been any investigation that has said that that's, those two things are related, and I just don't think we should go down that road. However, we don't know if the things two things are are linked because we haven't got enough information. So I think... It is important that we get that information, but in a way that protects everybody involved. Okay, well, like, I've noted the Minister's response, you know, uh, which was beyond just the prison issue, you, but we talked about critical incidents in a, in a general sense. Um, and she is saying in, in response to the committee that they do assess what issues that may generate public interest or impacting on the justice system and that's done on a case-by-case -case basis and individual merits of sharing that with us. Is, so there's obviously some kind of system. I don't know how well it's actually defined within the department as to you know, what merits being given to us as to critical type incidences or that would generate public interest but there must be some kind of filter that goes on. The Minister thinks the best way to do that is by having a good working partnership with this committee and building on our trust and so on. And But all of those things are good, but sometimes you need to have a very clear protocol. Now, she does make, a, I think, maybe a valid point that what we've asked for, no committee has asked for. Um, you know, in terms of having a detailed protocol as to what information should come, um, so if it doesn't exist in other committees, I think the Minister's fair enough to point that out, but that doesn't mean that it's right that it doesn't exist in other committees. Um, but I'm not clear just as to how we could rectify this if the Minister's not willing to engage with the committee to, to develop this. Does the committee need to think about asking for a protocol and these are the type of things that we want to be considered? information that we get supplied to death and custody being obviously a prime example of the type of information you know so th there could be a piece of work done to scope out what we as a committee would deem to be of a critical nature that would require a protocol 
um, and that we would initiate that with the department. Otherwise, we go back to the minister and say that we, we know your response. However, we still think you should engage with us. If she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to. We can't force her. Doug? Yeah, um, and, and it's an issue. If the, if the minister doesn't want to, then doesn't want to. And I, and I don't think you know a detailed protocol maybe is the right way, but just an understanding, um, certainly of something that's as serious as a death in, in, in prisons or in custody or, or, or anything like that. Um, uh, and, and the reality is we will have to revisit this whenever the, the prisoner's ombudsman brings out her report. But that could be so far down the line where we're trying to do stuff in a, in a sensible, speedy manner to, to avert issues uh, in, in the future. And I've asked the prison's uh, ombudsman if she would look at that level of, of, of um, night custody officers uh, and what part it plays within that. She doesn't have a statutory right to do that, but I believe she's going to ask for the minister to give her permission to do it, to do that. But again, we're now going to sit as a community, just waiting um, uh, until that report comes out. And, and, and it's just, to me, it's not a timely manner to be able to action something, you know, um, especially when there's two deaths in 10 days. You know, it's, I think it's pretty pretty awful, but, but you know. Paul? Yeah, first of all, I think we should state that people die in prisons, uh, not necessarily controversial, it's just life in many occasions. So, again, it doesn't have to be a controversial issue that primes uh, an official in the Department of Justice or any department to actually engage with the committee. Um, <coughs> what I think, giving us the heads up, for want of a better word, and for informing this committee, will we'll do wonders for that special relationship that the Minister yearns for. Now, if, she, if she's really serious for that, she should look at what the committee has actually functioned to do. And that is to scrutinise, but it's also there to support and advise. And really, we could never ever advise if we are not given the full picture. Uh, when we get that information, uh, confidential, confidential or otherwise, it's on us then to treat that information respectfully and responsibly. Uh, but the Minister and the Department should trust us with that. And if one of us step outside of any requirement or, or uh, agreement, then it's on us and we should take the flat for that. But we cannot do our job if we are half blind. We cannot do our job if we're not fully informed. So in order for the health of democracy in this country, I think it's right. Now, do we need a protocol? No, I don't think we do. I just think we need everybody to be open and transparent. And that should be the default. So I would be saying to the officials, if in doubt, tell the committee. It's as simple as that. Uh, and they will know, because they are experienced and they work in that world on a daily basis. They will know when an action is taken or a situation happens that is either severe, important, significant or abnormal. And that's the sort of stuff we need to know. We don't need to know what people do in their tea breaks. We don't need to know uh, what shift patterns there is. We just need to know as full a picture as possible in order to make informed decisions and choices and ultimately to do our work as scrutinisers. And once we do our work as scrutinisers, we will end up with a better department, a better world and a better democratic system in this country. And that's the crux of it. And if ministers are scared of that, if minister department officials are scared of the scrutiny power 
uh, of this committee, then they're certainly they've got the wrong end of the stick <coughs> and they've the wrong idea. Because we're also here to advise and support. Yeah, well, if members are happy, we'll go back to the minister indicating that we appreciate her willingness to develop that positive relationship. Uh, the committee at all times can be trusted with confidential and sensitive information and, and would agree to deal with it on that basis where the department provides that to us. I do think we should ask um, for her to elaborate on the paragraph where she talks about the combination of factors considered when determining what information to share with the committee. I do think she should elaborate on what is that process that the department um, goes through before they release information to them and uh, say that we expect um, just that openness and transparency at all times with the department um, and constructive engagement with the committee. Members happy we go back on that basis and then we can pick it up again. Okay. Okay then the next item is the um, criminal justice committal reform bill. Um, obviously members will know that that was introduced on Tuesday. So officials are attending the meeting today via the Starley facility to brief the committee on the principles of the bill. So the relevant um, papers, including the, the bill and explanatory memorandum, are available for members, uh, pages 45 to 107. And there's a copy of PowerPoint slides that officials are going to refer to during the presentation. They are on pages 8 to 16 of your tabled pack if you want to access those members. So hopefully at this stage um, I'm able to go to the castle building there and welcome formally then Glenn Capper, head of the Justice Performance Team, Access to Justice Directorate and Laura Mallon uh, from the Justice Performance Team. Uh, all from the Department of Justice and there may be a few more there that I can see in the picture that I haven't maybe mentioned. So this session, folks, will be recorded by Hansard and then that will be published on the, the committee webpage. So I think, um, Lynn, I'm handing over to you at this stage. Thank you, sir. I'm just checking if you can hear me okay? We can, yes. We can hear you clearly. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I've got a picture on screen that is four people all of their motions at the moment, but I can assume this is Laura and I in the room at the minute. So I'm not sure what you can see. Yes, absolutely. Statues. We have the same image of four people, but <laughs> so that's okay. That, that explains why I thought there was maybe more than just the two of you. But we can hear you, so okay. that's okay. You feel free to well, continue. Well, just get somebody at this end to, to see if we can get the video running. But if I maybe start making my comments, why don't you do that? Yes, no problem. Okay. Well, firstly, thank you. Uh, excuse me, we're the committee this afternoon, uh, and thanks for the opportunity to brief the committee on the Criminal Justice Act and the Reform Bill. It's important to say at the outset that the principles and policies around reforming the criminal process are not new. Powers to directly commit cases to the Crown Court are included in the Justice Act 2015. And reforms to the commitment process are considered in detail as part of that bill. We won't take a number of external reports and reviews recommending commitment reform, and I put some of those here. And reforming the commitment process is a key part of the department's plans to speed up the justice system and improve the experience of victims and witnesses. 
So why did you want to go one bill? Uh, this is a short, tightly focused bill designed to do three key things. Firstly, through the Justice Act 2015, we previously sought to remove the need for victims and witnesses to have to get oral evidence at the committal hearing to magistrate's court and then again at the crime court. The experience of giving oral evidence was sometimes dramatic, particularly under cross-examination, can have a significant impact on victims and witnesses. But this proposal did not receive sufficient support during the passage of the bill. Uh, the subsequent fresh start agreement, however, recommended that oral evidence pre-crime pre trial should be removed, and this bill delivers that commitment. Secondly, the bill seeks to get cases, more cases, more quickly to the Crime Court. The Justice Act of 2015 only provided for murder and manslaughter cases to be directly committed or transferred to the Crime Court, but this bill will expand the range of offences that will be included as part of this first phase of the round of direct committal. Finally, the bill leaves some technical issues to smooth the direct committal process. Whilst the principles of the bill are generally straightforward, some of the technicalities are quite complex. So if the committee's content, I'll work through some slides that outline the purposes of the bill with some pictures and charts that hopefully make things more understandable. And it's actually Christine, uh, you should either have a paper copy of the slides or have them on screen. And as we work through them, Laura and I are happy to answer any questions you have or to take questions at the end. So if you're content at that stage, if we need to move to the PowerPoint slides you have here. Yes, that's fine. We have them here. Okay, I'm just letting you know, I'm hoping that somebody's going to uh, Yes, we can hear you, so that's okay. Okay, so if we turn to the slide pack, and if you, if you move to the first slide, which is entitled Crime Court Committal Process, um, what this slide does is set out the current cases, uh, the current process for all cases that end up in the Crime Court. So just to quickly work through that, there's a magistrate's court in this hearing. And then all offences moved to the Magistrates Court for a committal hearing before then going to the Crime Court for the Crime Court trial. That slide also sets out the stages where evidence is provided. So in the Magistrates Court committal hearing, you would see that there are three stages where evidence can be given, or evidence can be given in three ways. Firstly, a preliminary inquiry, called a PE, which is written evidence. Then a preliminary investigation, called that PI, which is oral evidence, and then a mixed level, which is oral and written evidence. Um, so essentially, when we talk about the preliminary committal process, we're mainly talking about two things. Firstly, direct committal, which is transferring cases directly to the crime court without that magistrate's court hearing, the committal hearing. And secondly, minimizing the impact of, on victims and witnesses so they only have to get oral evidence once at the crime court. So when we talk about reforming the committal process, it's essentially those two things. If I turn to the next slide, which is titled the external recommendations, uh, there have been a range of external recommendations and bodies that have supported these reforms. Uh, so just to work through those, in 2016, uh, the Fresh Start Panel 
recommended removing oral evidence before trial and abolishing committal proceedings and terrorist offences, um, etc. In 2018, in its speeding up justice report, the old office said we should develop a timetable for completely eradicating the committal process. In 2018, criminal justice inspection recommended uh, that rape, serious sexual offences, and child abuse offences should be added to the list of offences to be directly committed. That was supported by the government review last year, and then at the beginning of 2020, the new decade into the approach team uh, wrote it with the executive report delivered the reform. So a range of recommendations supporting the uh, reform. If I turn to the slide, uh, direct commitment, this just gives slightly more detail on how the direct commitment process will work. So again, you'd see at the, the top row there, the current flow of cases that we've talked about. Underneath that is how direct commitment will work. So essentially after a, a one-off initial hearing in the magistrate's court, all the relevant offences will move directly to the Crown Court. That is, they'll be directly committed to the Crown Court. The 2015 Justice Act uh, provided that murder and manslaughter cases would be directly committed. Um, we could also add some specified offences by way of order. However, this bill will expand the offences that will be directly committed. Uh, and the list of offences will be those that, in the case of an adult, are triable only on indictment. Uh, so essentially, indictable will be offences, and that will include terrorism-related and serious sexual offences in line with those external recommendations. That is the offences will apply to both adult and youth cases, and the bill also allows us to add some uh, additional cases in the future by way of murder. As I then move to the next slide, titled the Oral Evidence, uh, this deals with uh, the issue of oral evidence in a wee bit more detail. We are trying to map out under both the current process and the direct committal process uh, where oral evidence is currently given and what difference the bill will make. So in the current process at the magistrate's court hearing, uh, the bill will retain <coughs> written evidence through that preliminary inquiry, but it will remove oral evidence uh, through the preliminary investigation and next committal. And as I've said, therefore just leaving oral evidence once at the Crown Court trial. I've also noted under the Crown Court box there's a process called the bill, um, and that includes just written evidence, so it won't change. Under the direct committal route, uh, as we develop plans to go down direct committal, we identify that the Justice Act 2015 includes a process called application to dismiss. So before Crown Court trial, uh, an application to dismiss can be kicked in from the point where the case is committed to the Crown Court up to an arraignment hearing, and that can include oral and written evidence. And when we left that as is, cases going through the current route uh, would only have to give oral evidence once, but cases in the direct committal route could potentially have had oral evidence twice in the application to dismiss process and then again at the Crown Court trial. So the committal reform bill will remove oral evidence in that application to dismiss process. And hopefully that makes sense the way we've described it. If I move on to the next slide, which is titled Operational Networking 1. 
So we're discussing the Committee of the Reform Bill today. Um, hopefully we will not make this way through the Assembly. We will be able to abolish or allow it pre-trial relatively quickly. That simply requires some rule changes. In terms of implementing direct committal, um, we've established a committal reform program with key criminal justice organizations, BPS also the Lord Chief Justice, Police, Prisons, Courts, for example. And we've also invited the Law Society and Bar Council to sit on a stakeholder forum. That program has four projects based on the legislation, the IT changes, the legal aid implications, and the business change required. And we hope to implement direct committal uh, in the autumn of 2022. Hopefully that's been a useful overview of the bill, um, and hopefully uh, the way we've described it makes it understandable. And Laura and I are happy to take any questions that you ask. Okay, thank you, Glenn, and that, that was helpful, and uh, the slides were particularly helpful um, for me to follow, so I appreciate that. Um, in terms of some of the, the areas, just to have a, a discussion about that, um, I'll have a few specific points, but in general, I suppose the argument that some, have made, some will make is that having an oral hearing flushes out issues rather than just <coughs> doing it by writing and... There's only so much that you can ever convey through a piece of paper. Uh, better to have somebody in front of you. Do you want to just address that initial general point in the first instance? Yeah, I can just check this video, sorry, sir. No, no, it's not. We just, you're fortunate that the, the, the frozen one is a sensible picture. You're, you're lucky you weren't. <laughs> but no, we can't, we can't see you yet. If you want to think we can log off and log on again, are you happy No, no, no. Listen, you continue. The, the, the audio is, is 100%, so we'll just continue. Okay, we'll keep going then. Yeah. Yeah, today we have a question, Chair. I'm sure members will be aware of the process of the 25th Clean Act. Uh, this is an issue that came up, as you know, the uh, department sought to uh, abolish the relevance entirely before Temple, um, and that didn't make its way through the Assembly. Um, I suppose there's a range of arguments there, um, but if we simply look at the external recommendations uh, that we're seeking to implement, uh, ranging from the Fresh Start panel uh, through to uh, what other inspection bodies have said, um, I think it's also clear that although some of the numbers may be small that we're talking about, what we're really conscious of is the impact, as I mentioned, on negative witnesses of having to give that sometimes traumatic evidence uh, more than once, um, sometimes on the cross examination. Uh, so, yeah, there are arguments on both sides, but um, the, the department's policy position and the external recommendations point this forward seeking to remove or evidence. Pre-trial, um, and there's no provision in the bill for any extraordinary measures where it does have an oral rather than just a written. That would, that, that right will be removed completely. Yeah, the bill seeks to remove um, or it doesn't altogether pre-trial. Okay. Um, in, in terms of then the the number of cases or offences under the directly committed route. Is there any indication of the kind of volume and numbers of cases that that would apply to? Yeah, I, I'm going to let Laura give us some numbers here. I suppose just as a context, the context, I mentioned that the 2015 Act 
including murder and manslaughter cases as those first be directly committed. Um, that's a relatively small uh, number of cases. And we also wanted to try and address the recommendations about um, terrorism and serious sexual offences. Um, this is, in essence, the first rollout of direct committal. So in deciding what cases to include in this rollout, um, we were conscious that we needed to strike a balance. We wanted to get enough cases to make that rollout meaningful and to be able to get enough information for evaluating how we do subsequent steps. Um, but we also didn't want too big a number as to swamp the system because this one that would have had a significant impact on the justice system and on the crime court. So we sought to strike that balance and I'll let Laura say something more about the number of cases that indicted on the offences we to. Um, yeah, just a, I suppose a bit of background information as well on um, PAs, PIs and mixed chemicals, just to put it in context a bit. Um, over um, a year, um, there will be thousands, uh, a few thousands of cases going through um, this process. Um, in recent years, that's fallen to around 1,500 mark. Um, of those cases, only about 4% of them will ever go through a PI or mixed So we're talking small numbers. About 82 people, I think, was it the 2018 figure. Um, so by and large, these cases progress by way of written evidence. Um, uh, in terms of the numbers of cases going through under direct committal, um, the department's intention is to fully roll out eventually direct committal to all cases to go to the Crown Court at the minute. The offences that we've selected um, to go in the first tranche would be about 30% of cases that will be um, committed in an annual basis. Um, so that will give us a large enough number to see how um, direct metal works in practice and takes a, a, a good chunk of um, cases directly from magistrates to crime. And thank you, Laura. And is there is there a time frame for when that thirty percent escalates to the hundred percent? All of us, uh, Sheriff said that we should develop a timetable before uh, fully implementing direct committal. Um, we want to do that as quickly as possible. We also want to learn from the, the first phase rollout in terms of understanding the, the, the rebalancing of resources and so on. So, over the next few months, we'll be developing a timeline. Uh, I suppose I would say that would be subject to our learning from the, the first phase rollout. But having developed the bill, we're now turning our attention to the programme board to looking at that rollout timeline. Okay, and what what are the offences that is going to be in that initial phase? Okay, they're described technically as, uh, and I'll just turn to the right page to give the right definition. Um, those that are the case of an adult are tried on only on indictments. Um, it's a probably a bit of a confusing title, but um, it is actually um, titled, it will be well recognised and understood. The terminology refers to adults in that there is legislation that, that for youth cases, um, the only offence um, for a youth case um, that is triable only on indictment um, are homicide offences. So we didn't want to disadvantage youth cases um, and we wanted to ensure that all cases that could go to crime court 
quotient. Um, so that is the terminology then that all cases that as an adult would be tried and this includes a range of offences. So you have your homicide, volunteer murder, manslaughter, all those sorts of things. You also have a range of sexual offences, um, serious sexual offences like rape, and you also have other offences like um, serious GBH and different things like that linked to terrorist and some terrorist specific terrorist related offences. We can provide a list um, if that would be useful. It's a rather long list, and that's why it's not sort of printed out in your packs today. But it is a range of the most serious offences that can only be tried in crown court, which no decisions can be made as to where they will be tried. Okay, that, that would be helpful. And then finally for me just then, um, how, how much will this speed up the process of uh, these cases and what has been the assessment around the financial costs associated with this change? Okay, um, I'll start off with that one, sir. It's a difficult question, how long will it save? of the, uh, the length of time for cases to go through. There's no doubt uh, from the department's understanding and that of uh, those inspection bodies that have talked about, the direct committal will definitely reduce the timetable for a case to progress through uh, to the Crown Court. Um, if you think about it, we're, we're taking out um, that sometimes lengthy magistrate's committal hearing. Having said that, the Crown Court um, hearing will probably and will be slightly longer. Um, the length of time depends on the case. Um, we've looked at cases going through to the Crown Court through the summons route and through the charge route, and the length of time for both of those will be different. Um, but it's difficult to get a figure of X amount of days or weeks that will be saved. Okay, and financial costs, yeah. Yeah, in terms of the finances, um, again, we come back to the point that um, this is in effect a rebalancing of resources. Um, this is still the same case going through to the Crown Court, so we will have different um, expenditure and resources required in the Crown Court when compared to the Magistrates Court. That's one of the things that we want to learn as well from our evaluation of this first phase. Um, we are developing and we're using some data from previous cases at the minute to uh, explore and extrapolate the impact that this will have on the two respective court tiers, the Magistrates Court and the Crown Court, and we hope to model that into how it will change the balance of resources between the two courts. We don't expect it to cost any more overall, uh, but it's going to be a bit of rebalancing. Um, and as you said as well, that I mentioned we, we've got a legal aid project as part of overall program. <coughs> uh, that will consider the legal aid applications for direct committal uh, and our legal aid colleagues in the department uh, are working on that project and we'll be doing some uh, targeted consultation next year with the legal profession to develop those legal aid applications and, uh, and fee structures. Okay, I'll open it up to members at this stage that want to ask questions. I had a had two questions there at the end, but actually Glenn answered them to be fair and and his response to your questions because I, I was wondering around the legal aid applications and whether there would be savings as well as costs, which is is the rebalance and stuff. Um, just to say thank you for the slides because it certainly is helpful and and helping us to understand the the process. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Linda. Paul, Paul, through. 
Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your presentation on the slides. They are very, very useful. Um, a couple of questions I have, uh, and this might be set in train uh, with regards to other procedures in the judicial system, not least Dublin courts, but how do you define a terrorist or is it more the terrorist offence? Because it strikes me that you may well have terrorists who are involved in other crime and because they just happen to be a terrorist, that's what gives the frightening impact to the witness. I think that the simple answer to that one is that we're dealing with the offence definitions here. Um, I think you're right, it's a very complex area and if in response to fresh start recommendations if we simply went for um, terrorist related offence it would be quite a narrow group and obviously defined by the various terrorist pieces of legislation. We know from um, our work with um, colleagues uh, within the department who are more used to this area that, and through our work on the indictable cases process as well that um, offences that are related to terrorists are, are global wide and can cover things like um, uh, violent offences, um, theft offences, etc. etc. I think that was why, um, as well, when we were selecting the offences to go through, that yes, we wanted to make sure that um, we had sufficient numbers um, of offences to move on, but we were looking at a broad spectrum. So this is violent offences, terrorist offences as well, um, that we're including in the first tranche. So, so, so just to be sure, violence is because, according to your page, according to your page ten, your the, the external recommendations slide. Uh, I can understand why you would have uh, terrorist offences and offences which tend to be committed by organised crime groups. I can understand why you would have rape, serious sexual offences, and child abuse offences. I probably would add to that that we probably need to make sure that we future-proof this to include domestic violence and stalking uh, in, the, in the near future. Uh, but, but you're telling me it covers all forms of violence? It, it covers um, all um, violent offences that are viable only on the indictment at this right. precise moment in time. In terms of future proofing, um, we shied away from putting a list of offences into the bill because um, that obviously is very restrictive and the terminology we should cover future offences. We also have a, a clause within the bill that allows us to add on additional offences um, should we need to, so um, by way of order. Um, so for example, if the domestic violence offence or shocking offences um, were um, what is termed as a hybrid offence and that it could be tried on indictment or summary, we could potentially add those on so that they are included. Yeah, I asked that question, I don't even realise or know in my head whether they are both. Um, I'm sure they are. Am I right in saying that? that they, at the minute, as presently with the domestic violence bill as it is, is there a route to Crown Court in that? Yeah, I have it in front of me actually, but I'm just, I'm, I'm speaking without thinking, and that's always a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, um, so just give, give the answer, please, please have your colleagues in the back to you if that's okay.
Okay, thank you. Uh, and another question then. Whilst you were removing, you're removing this. Uh, you're removing the the need for oral evidence, or PA, at the magistrate's court. Uh, does this stop, uh, or do do judges have the power to ask and request for oral evidence? Um, no, it, it, the bill plans to remove oral evidence um, pre-trial, um, so there there would be no oral evidence. Okay, and then with regards to the repeal uh, of Justice Act NA uh, 2015, your section 10, uh, just looking at the schedule of, of repeals and amendments, uh, it's maybe just the way it's written, but when I look at the schedule on the blue pages, it doesn't actually mention section 10, it mentions chapter 1 of part 2. And uh, various, uh, there's three other sections so and schedules. So I take it that section ten is is incorporated within chapter one of part two. Um, yeah, it, it is. It is there. Um, I'll just. We're just turning the pages yourself to find the right reference. Uh, page nine um, of the blue bill. Yeah. Um, it, it's under. Um, Point fifteen schedule section four three and ten are repeated. Um, oh, sorry, that's wrong question. It is in there. I'm sure you just said, but yeah. Um, so it it must well section ten must well fit into one of those four sections. But then I suppose the question is asked then: is is there is is there a wider repeal? Is there something else that is repealed alongside section ten? So, section 10 was one of the more complex areas that was repeated. So I want to specifically highlight that in the presentation. As, as the bill points out, there are some other uh, minor areas that are amended and repeated, and they are presented in the, the bill. Um, in the papers you have, there's a, a, a run for each clause, and that provides some more detail. Uh, but if a paper on the details of exactly what's being repealed is helpful, we certainly send that through. Okay. Uh, and again, so going forward, and I suppose it's the future proofing of this and the how the mechanics of legislation. So, if you are going to create a new offence in the future, and you believe that it should be uh, direct committal, do you put that in the face of the new bill, or do you amend this bill, Criminal Justice Committal Reform Bill? We're speaking with the Office of Legislative Council. Um, as we move to totally eradicate uh, the committal process in future tranches, and let's say it's two or three future tranches after this bill, that will require future legislation. Um, so we will require legislation as we seek to remove I suppose big tranches of offences from the committal process. However, as Laura has said, in the interim, if there are small numbers of quite specific offences that we want to remove, the bill is drafted, gives us the provision to do that by way of order. Right. So although big tranches will require some legislation for specific things that we would like to remove as they emerge and become more relevant, those can be added to the direct committal process 
Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Glenn. I, I'm just looking at the bill. I think you're in clause four, subsection four, when it talks about that on page two. Uh, what, what is the assembly procedure then in terms of the order? Is that going to be regulation? Is it whenever you say you're going to do it by way of an order, what, what exactly is going to be the legal instrument and how will that interface with the assembly's procedure? Okay, so sorry, just to clarify, what I'm saying is, so hopefully all being well, this bill uh, proceeds and goes through the Assembly. Following that, if we wanted future one-off uh, offences added, that would be done by way of order. So it wouldn't require any legislation. Yes, so the, the Department will make an order to that effect. Um, well, does that require any stage Assembly? Approval? No. It's secondary legislation that we would bring through that we would certainly serve the committee. Okay. Okay, listen, we can. Uh, I know we're now getting into the technical outworkings of this beyond the principles of it, so that's something I'm sure we'll, we'll look at at the committee stage. Um, members, any other questions? Members wanted to raise at this stage? Um, can, I, can I just ask, Lynn, finally, um, see, in terms of repealing Section 10, um, the, the, the Section 10 process of the Justice Act 2015. Yes, um, in terms of those operational risks, I know you mentioned at the start, I think you mentioned um, there were some risks associated with that. Can, can you just elaborate on that again for me and any interface with victims and witnesses? As to that decision, because I know that was something that they they had been keen for, which is why it was in the, the Justice Act 2015. Yes, certainly, Chair. Um, and it's, it's true to say that um, many hours have been spent um, back in the department discussing Section 10 and all its workings. Um, so, just to give a bit of context, I suppose if we look at the 2015 Act, Section 10 sits aside a um, provision that says only murder mass murder cases will be directly committed. So you've got a very small number of cases being directly committed. And then the section 10 process, it says, if somebody indicates an intention to plead guilty, they will go straight to the current court. But one of the key bits in that that gives us the problem is that if that person then changes their mind, then they would go back to the magistrate's court. And that notion of somebody sort of going forwards and then backwards in the criminal justice system is a really complex thing with a system that it's a, that's designed to move somebody from left to right through the system. And once we can start to go back, the operational complexities of that, the IT complexities, produce a number of risks, including, as I mentioned, the risk of false release or imprisonment. So as you um, put somebody, if they change their mind, go back to the magistrate's court, at that point, um, there are legal complexities that mean there's the risk that um, BL is applied wrongly and that person is released with the obvious impact on victims and witnesses. I suppose from the other angle, um, the, the very good intention of Section 10 was to put more cases more quickly to the crime court where there was an indication of a guilty plea. Although we don't record that, um, anecdotal evidence says that the actual number of cases that that would apply to is actually very small because it's not a guilty plea, it's an indication at an early stage to be guilty. 
um, and they should be talking a couple of hands for those cases every year. So taking into account all of those things, I also meant to remember that on the basis our ultimate intention is to eradicate the committal area of the magistrate's court. So there will be no magistrate's court to go back to in section 10. So all that effort and risk of section 10 would become redundant whenever we remove the traditional committal hearing. So taking those things into account, um, we think it is better to go for a more expanded first phase rollout, as in more cases being directly committed in legislation, and therefore not have section 10. Granted, we lose some benefit because people who indicate an intensive plea guilty would be directly committed. However, it's important to remember that we have more cases going through the direct committal route now. So in some ways, whether or not they indicate an intensive plea guilty or not in those cases is irrelevant because we directly committed anyway. Um, and also, as I mentioned, recognizing the importance of moving early guilty pleas more quickly through the system, we have included in the bill powers where an individual that indicates an intent an intensive plea guilty to allow the magistrate's court to get a lot of that preparatory work done for the crime court earlier. So that should also expedite the case. So that, that's a lengthy answer, Chair, before we answer some of your question. Yeah, no, that was helpful. Um, Paul's just asking just for, for a quick clarification. Chair, just for clarification, yes, the penalty for the offence for domestic abuse uh, offence is summary conviction and conviction on indictment. So I don't know why I even queried that, but it's there. Okay, well, I don't think anyone else at this stage, Glenn, has any questions. So I've no doubt we'll see plenty of here when we get up to the, the committee stage of this particular bill. So can I thank you and Laura for the time, unless you have anything else you need to, to tell us? Okay, listen, thank you. Um, I appreciate your time. Yeah. Um, Glenn, if you're still there, I know that we're having another session with your folks. Um, and it might be timely at this stage if it was dialed out and they dialed back in again while you're doing the clean down of the room and so on, just so we can see the, the visuals of the next group, if that, that can be accommodated. We do that, sir. I'm staying on case, but so I'll try to do that when we see shortly. Great. Well, listen, we're moving straight into the next session, so as soon as you are ready, we're, we will take our ease for a few minutes and then we'll get going again. Thank you. Okay, members. So the, the the next element of the the committee meeting is around the the budget aspect of it. So there, folks are going to get that together. So members, at this stage, um, we content as a committee that we'll support the principles of this bill, um, and that'll allow it to get into the next stage, and then obviously the committee will interrogate it and scrutinise it and so on. So if you're content, then we can indicate our support um, for the principles of the bill. Uh, the provisional order paper for Monday the 16th of November is whenever the second stage is due to take place and I'll uh, give the view that the committee is content for it to proceed into the committee stage then at that sitting of the Assembly. So the next item then is the um, future year's budget 
Um, and uh, we will take our ease. We need to suspend, so we just are hoping folks down at the castle are currently organising themselves appropriately. Do we know if they reconnected? Members, see while we're waiting, because I don't know if they're going to be connected or not. I'm going to jump to agenda item seven, the carriage of explosives, and maybe Christine, when, when we know they're ready to start again, someone can let me know and I'll go back to them. Show up on the screen when they're in the... Okay. Just, they should show up on when they're getting to be called. Okay. There is so up on the screen here, Christine. There, there is something in the audience there, but um, I'm not sure if the, bro the broadcasting folks are listening. Okay, sorry about that, folks. And then let's go back. Um, yes, thank you. Um, yes. Okay, Deborah, we're getting ready to, to start this session with Fuse folks. If Fuse are set up and ready to go. Yes, it's work. It's working now. Okay, just just for members' benefits, then. Um, members want to refer to pages 109 to 135, and they and there's. Pages 109 to 111 also have some questions that members might want to ask around the finance aspect of it. So the department's response to issues raised during the oral briefing on the department's October monitoring position at our meeting on the 1st of October is also in your tabled pack. Um, within that, the department has advised that while the situation is fluid, no additional costs have been identified in respect of EU exit in addition to those relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol. So for the purposes of this meeting then, um, I'm going to welcome Deborah. And maybe Deborah, um, I know all the folks sitting there, but if you want to introduce your, your team that is around you, it'll save me doing it. Um, so I'll hand over to you at this stage. Welcome. Once you've introduced your team, you can make a start. Thank you, Chair. So good afternoon. Um, and thank you to the committee for this opportunity and to provide you a briefing on our return to the Department of Finance on the budget 21 to 24 information gathering exercise. So this afternoon, um, I'm joined by Ronnie Armour, Director of Reducing Offending Directorate, Julie Harrison, Director of Safer Communities Directorate, and Glenn Capper, representing Anthony Harrison from Access to Justice Directorate. So when we were last at the committee in October, we had just submitted our response to the Department of Finance information gathering exercise following an early discussion with the Minister. Since then, we have continued to refine what was presented by the spending areas, and today 
we would like to outline the key aspects of that response and take your views. In order to facilitate the discussion, we provide a written briefing in advance to give the committee the opportunity to identify the areas that they want to explore further. You will recognise from the information that we provided that it covers a wide range of areas both within the department and across its agencies and NDPBs. On that basis, we thought it would be most useful for the committee to have the opportunity to discuss any issues outlined with those who are responsible for those areas. In terms of setting the next budget, when the exercise was first commissioned from the Department of Finance, it was anticipated that the budget would cover the period 21 to 24 in resource terms and its revenue year to 25 in capital. However, what we now know is that the Chancellor has announced that there was going to be a one-year budget given the challenges around COVID-19. What we all know, of course, is that one-year budgets are not helpful for the medium to long-term planning and this development is not ideal. However, given the wider uncertainty over the medium to long-term funding position, it's not unexpected. In recognising the challenges of one-year budgets in setting last year's budget, the department has started more medium to longer term planning, which has helped this process in helping us to understand the needs across the department. We hope that the written briefing provided to you and the discussion that we'll have today will provide you with a good overview of the position going into next year, provide the context around it, and provide further detail underpinning it to help inform your views to feed into the ongoing process. What we discussed today is by no means our settled position, but I would hope that it provides the committee with the areas where there are challenges in terms of financial pressures, and also areas in which we will be keen to invest in line with the Minister's priorities and of course subject to funding. Before we open up to questions, I'd like to provide a brief overview of the response to the Department of Finance. The response asked for details of pressures faced by the department. A summary of these has been included in your pack for consideration. Given the context that the budget is now a one year, I will focus on the 21-22 figures. You will recognise that across the range of spending areas, there is a significant list of pressures, and we have tried to categorise these for ease of discussion. Looking at resource cell pressures, the department faces in the region of 56 million of inescapable pressures, 21 million of which relates to pay and price. A significant element of what we do is service by people, the key elements of which sit in the PSNI and the Northern Ireland Prison Service, as you will see in your pack. Indeed, as a whole, pay accounts for 70% of the departmental budget and therefore this places ongoing pressures each year. 15 million of inescapable pressures relate to the PSNI across a range of areas including estates, security, body armour and uniform. There are 19 million of other pressures across the Justice family. Some of the key elements include court staffing and modernisation, legal aid and other staff pressures. You will note from your pack that these are the pressures that we deem are inescapable and therefore we need this funding just to stand still. We will categorise the remaining things under broad headings to help provide the background to the figures. 
what drives the cost, some areas of uncertainty, and the need for additional funding. Firstly, there are areas which we would anticipate the DOF would fund given their significance. These are implications of COVID-19, EU exit, and legacy inquests. We have provided the best estimates of the figures at this time, but you will appreciate these will continue to be refined as the position becomes clearer. Significant additional funding has been essential this year in these areas, and the expectation is that this would need to continue as they simply could not be absorbed. The next section of this relates to transformation and NDNA. The most significant element of this relates to the PSNI strategic outline cases in relation to an increase in police office numbers, 7,500, and an investment in digital IT. Since the committee received the written briefing, DOF has approved these cases. This approval will therefore allow PSNI to proceed the development of individual outlying business cases. It is important to distinguish between the types of business cases to avoid any confusion. The strategic outline case, or SOC, as you will hear us refer to, should be a relatively brief introduction to the project concept, which contains enough detail to support an informed decision on whether to proceed to the next stage, which is an outline business case or an OBC. It is this next stage, the OBC, where a more detailed analysis is undertaken and options considered in order to robustly determine a preferred option. The OBC is where the expenditure implications of that preferred option become clear and it is only after the OBC is approved that expenditure can be committed and of course subject to affordability. The department will continue to work with BSNI around ongoing requirements and operational considerations, which are a matter, of course, for the Chief Constable. You will also note from your pack that we've included greater funding in relation to the tackling paramilitarism and together building and united community funding, which we receive each year. This has been included to ensure a complete picture is provided of additional funding requirements. Finally, the department has put forward the current best assessment of the funding needs for the significant areas of historic investigations, compensation services, statutory disciplinary rates, and same households. In line with previous years, given the potential quantum of these costs, the expectation would be that these would need to be funded separately, as again, they simply could not be absorbed within the department's budget. Quality pay and legacy litigation are two areas which we continue to keep on reviewing, but at this point we have not sought to bid for additional funding. In addition to information and bids, we were asked to set out plans to live within baselines. With pressures of the significance outlined, you would appreciate these simply could not be absorbed without having a direct and immediate impact on frontline services. Ultimately, justice is a demand-led business and we have made significant savings in past years in areas which mean that to live within baseline would ultimately mean cuts. However, we must remember at this point that this is an NICS-wide exercise to inform decisions on funding, and without clarity on what the NI budget position would be, we don't know what that budget will look like. 
So we hope that frontline services will not be affected to a significant degree if we receive a reasonable settlement. <coughs> this exercise is about providing an overall picture of pressures and understanding the impact if these were not funded to inform wider funding decisions. The committee will note for the pact the bids we have made for additional capital funding, but will also note that this is a significant request, so ultimately it will have to be reprioritised and reprofiled to live with, uh, within the funding envelope that we are allocated. So finally, I just want to touch on prioritisation. Whilst the request did ask for bids to be prioritised, this is a significant ask in the department with five agencies and eight non-departmental funding bodies. We continue to work through this with our minister, and the views of the committee are important in helping to inform this process. This will be an evolving process, and we will ultimately want to fully align the budget to a multi-year programme for government. Whilst we had hoped that this would be a multi-year budget, we will continue to nudge that work forward internally and continue to make progress. So in conclusion, I hope I've provided a useful overview of the response that was provided to KOF in terms of the issues we face going into the next budget period. We continue to operate with uncertainties around COVID-19 and Brexit, but we remain committed to update the committee as our position develops. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to provide this briefing, and we are happy to take any questions. Okay, thank you, Deborah. That's been very helpful. Um, in terms of the pay costs, just to check, that relates to pay inflation, that doesn't take into account uh, any increase in personnel, for example, in the police service or prison service for new recruits. Is that just the, the standing still of the current number of... Yeah, that's, that's the standing still, so then there are um, additional costs for additional posts uh, associated with additional work, etc. And then separately, um, you will see um, some reference made to the strategic outline cases for the increase in place numbers, um, where um, the estimate is that in order to increase from the existing um, provision, the seven and a half would require approximately 40 million crowns when they are all in post, which of course would take a number of years for them to get to that position. And the vacancies that exist in terms of the core aspects of the department, um, are, are they vacant because of the financial pressures or because of an inability to recruit people into them? So it's, um, it's really to do with the um, issue of my supply. Um, so there are some um, challenges at certain grades. Um, and of course, with COVID, some competitions were paused. Those are now back up and running. Um, and we are meeting internally to try and prioritise the current vacancies and those that we need to fill as quickly as possible. Um, and what actions need to be taken if we can secure the source um, immediately, and what that means to what we'll go forward. Okay. Um, and in terms then of your bid to DOF for things that you've outlined that shouldn't fall to the department to, to fund legacy was one of them, and there was a number of other areas. Has there been contingency planning then if DOF aren't in a position to provide uh, that funding, what what the impact would be on the Department of Justice, and has that exercise highlighted the type of uh, work streams and programmes that would need to stop if that was the case? So when it comes to things like COVID and EU 
exit and, and DNA, the, the, the size of those requests are so significant that we just simply couldn't um, absorb those um, within the baselines. And with regard to the others, we have looked at what that would mean for frontline services and it would have an impact on courts and on prisons and on police. Um, but as I said, we hope that those inescapable costs at a minimum would be met. But there would be massive challenges um, if we didn't get things like the COVID pressures and the EU exit, etc. met. Um, and and simply wouldn't be absorbed by this department. And can you give me a bit more detail on the COVID cost? Because I'm looking at the, the figures there, 36 million, 22 million, 18 million um, in 23-24 year. interested to to look to look at this one in more detail because I think most people will be most people will be shocked that even up to 23 year 23 24 that we're still operating on the assumption that covid is a problem and never mind Absolutely. never mind the first of April yeah. next year I have to say here that of course we have to base this on what we would deem to be hopefully a worst case scenario um, and we would hope that the position of COVID does improve um, over, over the next number of months and years, hopefully. Okay, in terms of some of the, the, the money, I know the Minister for Finance has talked about departments holding on to funding, that he wants to make sure they're not just doing that. Um, uh, and the event occurs where they're not actually able to spend it. I think DOJ are holding is it just over two million at the minute. Are, are you planning to get the two million spent? So uh, if you recall, the two million that was being held um, because we were still scoping what might be required for the Nightingale courts. 
um, and also trying to um, ensure that we understood what might happen on the courts income side. Um, we are currently going through the process um, of our January monitoring round um, and we're collecting um, all the information on that. Um, so we'll be in a better position um, in a couple of weeks' time um, to give you an update on that. So um, at the moment, we are hoping that we will be able to, to live within budget. Um, and if um, we need, we can re-divert that to the department elsewhere in the department that is not needed um, for the Nightingale uh, courts or for the, uh, the courts income. But I think at this point, it's reasonable to assume that some costs will be incurred on the Nightingale courts. Okay. It will get spent, though. You won't get to the end of the financial year and it'll it'll be sitting there and too late to spend elsewhere. So I don't know what will happen between now and the end of the financial year and we're basing that on a number of assumptions around COVID. Um, you know, obviously we're in the second wave now um, and we don't know what might happen. But on current projections, we're hoping we'll live within budget and the same just to work on this over the next couple of weeks and I'll be better placed to answer that question and then chair. Okay, well, listen, that, that's fair enough insofar as it goes because there are businesses crying out for money and if departments are sitting on funding that they're not going to spend, it can be redirected to the private sector, which is in desperate need of it. So I'm sure you're alert to, to the, the wider public interest in making sure this funding is actually spent um, before the end of the year. Okay, I'm going to bring in other members at this stage um, that have asked quite, want to ask questions. So Emma, and then I'll bring in Paul. Thanks, Chair. Um, in the pack, you, you have details around the um, 53 million that's required, and it's um, detailed for historical investigations and, and other um, bits and pieces. Um, will that um, 53 million is, is that needed if there is no HIU established? And what will it be used for? Can we get a breakdown of, of where exactly that will be spent? Um, for example, gone um, vouchers dealing with a number of legacy investigations. So is the money going to be used for the likes of that to bring in outside um, police services to investigate legacy cases? Um, my other question is around, um, will there be, is there any plans in place for any cuts to services to absorb any of these pressures or indeed cuts to any of the workforce to absorb any of these pressures that you have? So um, I think as, as I outlined um, in the opening remarks, it would be really difficult for this department um, to absorb this without having an impact on the frontline services. Um, and of course, as you know, the majority of our budget is all on staffing. Um, so yes, if, if we didn't get this money and had to fund some of these items, then that would have a significant impact. Um, all, all of those ones that you're referring to, um, historical investigation, so I mean, that, that is the element um, we are saying that, that they need to, to, to continue with some work on this and of course we will wait um, further decisions around that area. Um, on the compensation services one, this is the um, direct impact um, of the statutory discount rate hitting um, of the about, is it estimated to be about 30 million pounds. So that's where we're going through the process of reviewing the statutory discount rate and the change. We are seeing that people are, are holding off putting in their claims and awaiting and confirmation of that discount rate. So we expect that to hit, hit next year. Um, that is a working assumption, that's why that is so large. And then the remainder of three million per annum is around the same households, um, which um, you'll be aware of, um, which was um, corrected this year, so that is the impact of that one coming in. Um, and the, the legally large um, case exceptionality, um, we have um, a, a number um, of high volume cases 
um, on, on the legal aid side, um, there are three specific cases. Um, there's a 36 defendant case before the Crown Court, um, in which we have three groups of defendants, a main contractor, a number of subcontractors, and others um, who were involved in, in some money changing, and who are facing um, a range of, char of charges um, involving defrauding the HMRC. And this case is highly unusual um, in respect of the number of defendants and the complex relationship between them. There's another case, um, which is the 30 defendant case before the Magistrates Court, um, and the charges arise from alleged stage road traffic accident resulted in um, alleged insurance fraud. And there's a third case before the Magistrates Court for committal, and it involves alleged offences of fraud again against the HMRC. So those are those exceptional cases. Um, which we estimate to cost about nine million pounds over the three period, three year period. Um, so that's really the, the background to those. Um, I'm not sure if colleagues want to comment on, on the other elements. Okay, I just have one more. I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit, Emma, um, while you were talking, so I hope that I covered all of the things that you mentioned there. Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Emma, I just have one more. Um, um, Short question. Um, the problem solving um, justice piece, um, we, we have seen that it not only has better outcomes for the individuals and families and communities, can the department give us a commitment that these kind of initiatives will get funding priority in, in the face of these pressures that, user face, that the, the department's facing? If I may pick that one up, um, I'm worried the, the committee took paper and published a week ago on the problem solving justice plan. As Deborah said, the key year we're looking at is uh, the 21-22 year. Um, so just, just to give some assurance, the baseline for problem solving justice uh, that's included in the department's baseline funding and allocated to the respective areas is about 2.6 million pounds. That problem solving justice five-year plan said that for the 21-22 year, the forecast costs are about 2.7 million pounds. So I think it's safe to assume that by and large, problems solving justice costs for that year um, are effectively funded. There's a, a very small gap that we think that that would be a problem. So hopefully that gives assurance that uh, as things stand, there's sufficient baseline funding to take problems solving justice, justice forward as planned in that year. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thank you. Linda? My question's actually a follow-up to, to that one. So. <clears throat> Glenn, just to clarify, there was an issue that came to the committee a few weeks ago around the support hubs, which would is part of the five-year plan on problem-solving justice, and yet we're being told that there's an issue around funding for it. So if it's part of the five-year plan, then there shouldn't be any question around funding, and what I would be a wee bit concerned about is that if the department is saying this is part of our five-year plan, but we intend for somebody else to pay for it, or for it to be paid out of another source which is essentially also part of problem solving justice and that is the, the PCSPs. So and I'd just like a wee bit of clarity around that. Is it the intention of the department to fund the support hubs directly and not asking the PCSPs to fund them for them? I'm, I'm happy to respond to that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so yes, there was a bit of a concern um, partly, I think, about communication. Um, so essentially, at the moment, there's about a, a £3,000 contribution through PCSPs to the support hubs. 
Um, we're in the process now working with local government PCSPs to, to come up with a better way of doing that because actually they're not all funded the same way. Um, but just, just to reiterate what we had said, it's really important work and it's absolutely something that we want to support is just working out the right mechanism to do that. Okay, the mechanism's one thing, and I and I, I know exactly what you're saying but from my previous life on the placing board, so I know that I, I understand where you're coming from in terms of that they don't all work exactly the same, but I just want that reassurance that the funding for the hubs is coming from the department directly. And whilst, yes, I accept some PCSPs make a contribution, whether it's through personnel or through um, actual finance they do make some contribution i acknowledge that but is there funding coming from the department for the hubs so, so i think at the moment it's not quite as direct as that and one of the things we're going to look at is is that easier i mean some of them aren't funded at all because actually the work is done through local government or through pcsps but just to restate it's important valuable work um in the wider community safety space, so we are very supportive of it. I'm, I'm confident we'll get that work through in the next couple of weeks. Okay, Paul. Thank you, Chair, and thanks very much for presentation and answers so far. Uh, again, fascinating subject with regards to long-term planning, uh, and there's certainly a part of crystal ball gazing in all of this. I, I recognise that. Uh, so as we go further into the future, figures have to be placed in context and and. Uh, treat it as such but we've been constantly preached at with regards to living in the new normal it strikes me that living in a new normal would be a very good time to bring in efficiency savings and to do things differently in order to run departments better uh, can I ask from each of the people players around the table there what efficiency savings are you making at this time as we live in the new normal and how will that affect the budgets going forward And there have already been reductions in, in areas such as, as legal aid, for example. Um, the department has already um, absorbed cuts um, of over 9% um, since um, it was 2011-12. Um, so we have made significant reductions. and um, There have been large reductions um, on, on the money side, um, with the operational reductions in the 2019 I think it is. Um, but I let each of them speak to those, but there have been significant um, um, efficiencies made across this department over the past number of years, and we have taken on a significant amount of additional work. Um, and um, before we take all afternoon to actually talk to you about that, um, I'm quite happy to come back to the committee on what um, my colleagues want to be saying about their own business areas as well. I mean, if I, I can pick that up, Paul, uh, I mean, Deborah's absolutely right. Uh, if you look at the prison service budget between 2010, for example, and now, uh, you see real efficiencies in terms of a very significant number, uh, a very significant staff reduction number, um, and a very significant reduction in the funding. We, you know, have our, our Prisons 2020 programme at the moment, uh, which is about modernisation about continuous improvement and about, uh, about efficiency. But, but I would have to be honest with the committee and say that in the, in the current environment uh, where we're trying to, to deal with the challenges of COVID, um, delivering efficiencies would be very, very difficult. Um, I'm not sure what further efficiencies
emergency, we will be able uh, to deliver without us starting to take some fairly significant action and stopping uh, some of the things that we're doing. Um, and if we were to do that, uh, you know, it would undoubtedly have a very detrimental impact on the rehabilitation agenda uh, that we've been pushing through Britain 2020 over the past um, couple of years. Um, if I maybe answer that question in two parts, I suppose looking firstly at the, the core department. And the answer is just the space. I think it's a relatively small departmental budget, but some of the reforms that we're doing won't necessarily release um, cash savings straight away, but they're designed to make the system better, and I suppose therefore deliver longer term savings both to the justice system and further afield. I'll give three examples of that. One's on the justice that we've already talked about this afternoon, so we make a difference beyond um, DOJ, the Gillen Review of Serious Sexual Offences that the committee's familiar with, and the world of speeding up justice. On the court service side of things, I suppose it's a similar story to, to what Bonnie has outlined in the prison service, where there have been budget cuts over recent years and, and therefore savings um, and efficiencies related. Um, one example is a reform of the court service fee structure, um, which brought in significant additional income to help mop up pressures. Um, and I suppose in the longer term, uh, the committee will be familiar with the court service modernization portfolio. And that looks at a range of things, including, for example, the court service estate and the court service IT. And we believe there are real savings to be made there in the long run, but that will require shorter term capital investment. And part of the figures that you have on the capital side um, are things related to that capital flow we needed to deliver those longer term savings over the next few months. And I suppose from a safer case perspective, I would share Ronnie's. Um, I, I think all of the focus is on important essential services. There's not, there's not a great deal of scope um, for efficiencies. I suppose the one longer term um, exciting opportunity is some of the transformation agenda, certainly that the police um, are looking at. So Deborah touched on, on the three SOCs around digital officer numbers in the States. And over time, I think depending on the interdependencies of those three things, um, you could end up um, with efficiencies, but that will take time to work through as they move to a, a new operating model. Um, but it's not an immediate or short-term fix by any means. Okay, thank you. And can I ask then, monitoring rounds will become very important uh, if we ever get to a three-year or multi-year budget. Uh, they will take on a, a more significant role, I su would suggest, a uh, more critical role. So uh, to me, there should be more democratic accountability with regards to monitoring rounds. What is the duty on the department at present in bringing forward their plans or bids in monitoring rounds? Sorry, I cannot share So, so do, is there a duty placed on the department to bring to the scrutiny committee of any department uh, the bid before it's given to the Department of Finance? Or, or do you simply bring us the bid? So we would always try to bring it to you before it goes to the Department of Finance that you can discharge your scrutiny role and can input to that and give us your view to make sure those are taken on board. Sometimes the timing of that doesn't always lend itself to it. However, if we ever are able to bring it to you before it goes to DOF, 
there's always a timeline in there between dealing with the and um, collating all that information and it's finding its way back into the executive. So there's always an opportunity for us to go back if there are particular areas that the, the committee wants us to, to look at and revisit and we will bring that back to our minister, of course. So, so there wouldn't be an additional burden or difficulty if there was a statutory duty placed on departments to bring their monitoring round bids to the relevant committee before that bid was in to the Department of Finance? I think the challenge will be the timing of all of this. Um, because in a department the size of DOJ with five agencies and eight and departmental public bodies, collating the information takes quite a, a lot of time and then obviously there are internal processes, but you know, in principle absolutely not, but it will obviously cause challenges for us around the timelines. It might reduce some of the timelines and then we have the issue about how how much how much scrutiny have we had internally for yes to you, etc. But look, we can work those things through um, but it wouldn't cause an issue, you can manage it. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. A number of my questions have been answered, but I just wanted to pick up on what um, Linda was discussing in, in, in terms of the support hubs. If and, if and when that is rectified with funding through local government and PCSPs and the department, um, I would certainly appreciate an update on where that is um, and what's happening. Uh, with that, because I, I appreciate that they're all sort of funded differently, resourced differently, um, but just to kind of get the details that they are going to be funded um, and, and clear up any communication issue. No problem. Um, in terms of, I, I know we've been talking about this for quite, quite some time, but EU exit costs, I note on the, um, the response just on our table pack, and it's the department, it says the department continues to work with the justice partners um, in, on a range of planning scenarios, including deal and no deal. And at this stage, no additional costs have been identified in addition to the costs relating to the protocol by PSNI. Has there been any scenario planning aside from the PSNI costs? Is there any foreseen in either scenario cost to the department on EU exit? Okay, so it just in terms of either if there is a deal or no, no deal in the implementation of the protocol or so on, there is no no additional cost to the department arising out of EU exit. It's only to the PSNI. Okay. So, so we're working with a range of partners, particularly the organised crime task force, um, and, and certainly at this stage, that's right. The only financial indication of is, is for the extra, I think it's 200 officers. Okay. Um, and maybe I'm just being naive with the Brexit process, but I find that very surprising that there would be no additional costs. Um, relating even to the discussions that the committee have had on data sharing, on European arrest warrants, on relationships with Angarda Shakona, um, just that that if, if there is no additional cost, depending on deal or no deal, then great. But apart from PSNI, but I find I do find that quite surprising, and I hope I'm um, I'm proved wrong on that. Um, but I appreciate the feedback from the department. Um, in terms of the PSNI numbers, 
and maybe it's just a point of clarity. On the, the submission, it says about the additional police officers, which of course the committee have debated and the assembly have debated as well. It says that the um, it is intended that the costs will be met through overtime, but then there is a bid for further financing on that. Could you maybe explain what that means? So the, the place um, had originally asked us for funding for the extra 100 officers this year, which of course we weren't able to provide. The place have gone back and, and we prioritised their budget and have said that um, by reducing some overtime that they will be able to start to bring in um, the 100 officers. It's important to note that they would bring the 100 officers in towards the very end of this financial year, which means there's only a small proportion of the full cost of the 100 officers heading this year. Um, and the PSNI will have to look at how they manage that next year, dependent um, on the budget that is then allocated. Okay, so it's the 100 officers rather than the, the further additional ones that we discussed? Yes. Okay, yes. that's fine. Um, the fine, I suppose, the COVID costs, so I know something that that's what the chair had picked up on, and, and certainly I would welcome to tease that out. That's, as you said, that was based on worst case scenario. Is worst case scenario the scenario that we're in right now or the scenario that we were in in March to June? Um, <laughs> I just want to try and get my head around what that looks like. Um, I think it's fair to say that lessons that we learned, and as we know, um, like the courts and um, the presence that we very innovative in the way they can still deliver parts of their business. We have the jury trials and all the rest of the money. So what we're hoping is that we can build on that. So, you see the costs coming down, so that is on the basis that we'll continue to innovate around this area um, and make improvements. So it's a worst case scenario based on the fact that we'll continue to learn and make changes and adapt um, as, as time goes on. Okay, and I appreciate it as a very fluid situation and we don't know what's going to happen in a week, let alone in two years' time. Um, so I know I do appreciate it as very much a crystal ball looking. Um, finally, in... I think it's page 127 of our pack. It was point, uh, paragraph 72, and it said about savings measures required to live within baseline, and it said about Northern Ireland courts and tribunals civil fees. Could you maybe tell me what those civil fees are? In terms of the breakdown of no, just what they are and what that means, because I know it says in terms of it's relatively small, starting at 275 thousand pounds and increasing to 600. Thousand pounds in twenty three twenty four. Just in, what does that mean, kind of practically? Okay, I'm just pausing because I made a slightly different number pack to you, so I'm just trying to find out. It's just paragraph um, seventy two on the section on plans to live with in resource delbius lines. Okay, yeah, my, my understanding of that is that um, the court service have been uh, delivering. A reform of their fee structure over the past few years, um, which, although one hundred doesn't deliver savings, it delivers increased income, and that increased income can help offset pressures. So this is another tranche of those uh, civil fee increases that will uh, deliver that the amounts of money in your pack. Uh, I'm referring maybe to court service colleagues who might be able to give us more breakdown of what actual fees deliver those amounts of money. But I know there are a range of different civil fees that make up different percentages of the total civil fee income. 
but I think the fact you look great out of what's actually several things make up those numbers if you can with that. Thank you. No, appreciate that. It's just to try and tease out if that's something that the committee has already been addressed on and agreed to, or is this new, potentially new fee structuring coming down the line? Just because it does extend, obviously, 275k in 21-22, and then um, more than doubling within 23-24. As part of that conversation, I made sure we split that between fees that have been agreed by the committee and our fees. And if there's any element of that that's proposed to be one, but I can assure you if it's proposed to be ones, we'd be working on the committee if that was the day. No, thank you. I appreciate that. It's just out of interest. Thank you. Okay, can I bring in Sinead Bradley? Thank you, Chair. Um, I appreciate that. Can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you, Sinead. Yes. Thank you, yes, because I was having difficulty um, with the handoff system in the earlier part of the meeting. Um, thank you for the presentation. I, I'd just like to reiterate the importance of fully understanding that statement about the um, financial implications of the EU exit. I too was a little bit taken back by that, um, particularly given not just the presentations from the PSNI, which talked about suboptimal options and how laborious they were and labour-intensive um, costs, but also across the justice family, I had an understanding that there would be a ripple effect, effect there. So I would appreciate a clear assertion on that um, particular topic. You, I would also like to make a point, uh, you talk about how there's very little scope, I suppose, left within the department to be able to um, cushion or carry, absorb any further financial pressures that it may face. And I just did wonder, when you make um, your, your submissions to the Department of Finance, do you outline that? How, how directly do you speak to the Department of Finance about what that would mean for frontline services and what the impact would be? And I take your point there about um, investing in um, projects that would service a longer term saving is you know you are the department of finance that if we haven't this budget and we and we're forced to stop on this the implications are we won't see the savings as projected in year two three four five going ahead um, and i just also want to just while i, I have like um, the capital Dell project you mentioned there the place ombudsman and um, that there's a higher um this year could you explain what that is? And could you also tell me, NDPB in general, is there pressure on them to help achieve um, efficiencies across the department? Thank you. Okay, so um, first of all, there is a detailed template um, where we outline the implications um, if, if these pressures were not met. Um, of course, we will be supplying the committee with, with those detailed um, templates, so that is all in there. So you will see around each business area when we have clearly articulated the impact of this would have on frontline services. Um, on the opening one, I'm, I'm not sure really, um, but what we were talking about was to do with the historical investigations, and that we had a pressure there um, in Cody that we're looking for, which is resource, so it's not capital. Um, and then on your other point, which is around the NDPBs, we've been working very closely with the NDPBs throughout this process, um, ensuring um, that we are clear about what is truly inescapable, understanding what cuts and savings they have absorbed in the past, 
um, and what it would mean for them if they did not get their budget allocation. And again, that is covered um, in, in the templates that would be given to DOF around the implications for our employees of living with them. And that would give you a sense of really, we are at the point where we can't absorb anything. We will have to stop things. We will have to pause things. Um, we will have to slow down things. Um, those are the sorts of really tough decisions that we will have ahead of us. Um, and when we get our funding envelope, it will give us a better idea um, of how far down we need to go on this. Sinead, do you want to... You're okay. Okay, is there any other members? No. Okay. Um, Deborah, can I thank you and the team for your time? There, there's a few other questions that we, we had, but I'm happy that I can follow up on them in writing to you. But um, for now, if I can just pass all my thanks to yourselves for joining with us. Thank you, Okay, thank you. Okay, members, um, if you're content, what some of the questions in the clerk's memo we'll just will follow up with the department and ask for a written reply to them. Um, there's also just this broader issue, and I asked about it around any contingency planning in the event that they don't get funding, um, and they, they they've just touched on it tangentially, in my opinion. Um, but obviously, they will have collated this type of information. Um, that's, that, it's bound to have happened. Um, so if, if you're happy, we will request details of the information that has been collated as part of their future year's budget um, and actions that have already been taken and any corresponding impacts to live within reduced budgets um, and then their actions and reduction of measures that are required going forward to live within their budgets along with corresponding impacts. We will formally ask for that because that will have some more detail my experience, you always carry out this exercise and your NDPBs say, if we don't have five million, here's what it means, this is what it looks like, um, and we haven't got that. So let's formally ask um, and see what response we get back. Um, okay, then item six is the Domestic Abuse and Family Proceedings Bill, and pages 137 to 149 of your meeting pack. Um, committee, as members will know, agreed to bring forward six amendments um, at the consideration stage of the bill. And they have been submitted um, and are scheduled then for next Tuesday for the uh, debate in the Assembly on this. So the Minister has now written outlining her position in relation to each of the committee's amendments. Um, the Minister supports one of the committee amendments, doesn't support two of them, and then has provided um, amendments of her own in relation to three of the amendments uh, which we have put in. So, members, we know we have discussed this all at length. You're well versed in all of these issues. Uh, as a contingency, um, Veronica Holland uh, is available through the Starley facility should members require any further, further, further information. But if you don't, I don't intend to go to uh, Dr Holland to go through the Minister's amendments. Um, members should be able to understand them, but if there's some points of clarity and there's maybe one or two areas that I might tease out with our members are at liberty to, to ask for um, to do that. So um, let me just go through each of the amendments in order uh, listed in the Minister's response um, for the benefit of committee members um, and, and we can handle them. Um, 
in that respect. So the first one obviously was around the uh, domestic abuse protection notices or orders, um, and which the Minister has indicated her position in being opposition to it, which gives the reasons why. Um, uh, so obviously members, we are pressing with an amendment which has been tabled on this. Um, the Minister's position doesn't change my position in uh, respect of it. Um, ultimately, if the Minister wishes to bring this forward in primary legislation, as she's indicated through the miscellaneous provisions bill, she can do that. And she can repeal then this amendment if we pass it. So you know, there's, there's no obstacle to the Minister taking the course of action that she wants to take. Um, that isn't predicated on uh, the committee's uh, amendment um, that's being moved next Tuesday. So um, unless members have a different view to that, then we would press ahead with the, the amendment. Um, no members are content. The, the Operation Encompass um, aspect of this, obviously the Minister is off the view, which we know members that the committee um, relating to it may not um, adequately provide for the necessary regulations uh, to be brought forward, as in she thinks that it's likely outside the scope of the bill. So she has tabled an alternative uh, amendment um, to it which she believes ensures as robust as possible and provides for a structured framework enabling the detail to be set out in regulations in consultation with partners in the Department of Education and the text then of the Minister's amendment is available. Um, the committee amendment provides a vehicle for the implementation of Operation Encompass. The Minister's amendment provides for what the committee wants um, but is much more detailed and it is more comprehensive. Um, so. In terms of some of the options that the, that, that we have, um, the committee could therefore decide not to move its amendment and support the minister's amendment, assuming that it's deemed admissible. Of course, that would still achieve the committee's aim, which would be a result. Um, ultimately, that's why we've pressed for this. Um, it would have been more helpful if the department had came up with this whenever we had asked them, but they didn't. Um, that's a tactical position that they've taken on a number of these, which is worth bearing in mind as to how we proceed. Um, but not. Withstanding that, um, obviously we can look at the department's amendment um, uh, around what they have put forward. If both are found to be admissible, um, and here's the issue about our committee amendment, and then I'll, I'll bring Linda in, um, it's likely that the, the minister's amendment would be taken first, and therefore the committee's amendment, um, if, if the minister's amendment is passed, the committee's amendment um, wouldn't be taken. Um, but there is also the issue that uh, our amendment uh, is drafted very neatly to, to hopefully ensure it is in scope. There may be an issue about the Minister's amendment being outside of scope, and ours may not be. Um, so uh, that, that's something, I suppose, that the committee needs to, to bear in mind and in all of this, and I'll, I'll use this for some of the other things that she's suggested. Our amendment can be passed by the Assembly, and then at further consideration stage, it can be tidied up. And it can do exactly what the minister's amendment has done. So, you know, there's a number of issues just to consider in respect of respect of that, Linda. Um, first of all, just to place on record, Operation Encompass is something that I have raised. I think since, if not the very first day I came onto this committee, very close to it. So I 
would have appreciated, as you've outlined, that something had been brought forward. And I accept that there is the potential that it's not within scope. But the department were able to come forward with this amendment now, even in light of the fact that it may well still <coughs> potentially not be within scope. So I would have appreciated it had it come forward sooner because it certainly would have shortened our length, very lengthy conversations around it mm -hmm. and been helpful to the committee. And, and I mean, you know, you've talked earlier on about the minister's wish to have a good relationship with the committee. So I think that it would have been good to have had it. Um, it's something that I have been pushing for and asked repeatedly questions, and not only in this committee, but previously in the policing board of the chief constable and others. Could they please tell me where the legislative gap was? And I never actually got an answer to that question. And now when the minister outlines in, you know, in the event that this is not within scope, what her department intended to do anyway, why never at any stage was I made aware of that? Or was this committee made aware of that? So I'm a wee bit annoyed about that, to be honest with you. But I mean, I'm not precious about it. The important thing is that we get this in. But I do think that, that, that there was an opportunity to show that this, this committee and the department are working together. You've highlighted this issue. The department has identified this is actually something that could be of benefit. Let's see what we can do together to, to get to the right outcome. Now, hopefully, whatever happens, we're going to get to the right outcome. But I just wanted to place on the record, because I was a wee bit annoyed just the amount of times that has re repeatedly been brought up and never at any point has anybody been able to answer for me where, first of all, even where, what the legislative gap was, or secondly, how that legislative gap could be addressed, which is why I sought to bring it into this bill and you know that the rest of the committee members were in agreement on that. So I'm keen that however we put, go forward, that this is still addressed. And now that we have a commitment from the minister, in this response, or in this letter, to say that it was her intention to deal with it. If it is outside scope and doesn't isn't dealt with in this bill, I expect it to be dealt with. The department has now acknowledged there is a gap. They know what the gap is. And according to that letter, they can fix it, or did intend to. So I expect, whatever happens, that that is actually dealt with, that legislative gap is, is addressed. So members, in terms of just dealing with it, um and uh, once the, the minister put forward the amendment, obviously I got advice to make sure, you know, in terms of the detail of it, um, it is more comprehensive and does what we want it to do. Um, now, the issue there is, I suppose, from a procedural point of view, is it the committee's view that we would support the minister's amendment and therefore then we don't move our amendment? Um, well, when I say that, if the minister's is called, then if the committee's view is we're supporting it, obviously then once it's voted on, ours falls in that respect. But the UI would then wouldn't move our the committee amendment at that stage. Um, and is is that the the preferred way that the committee wants to go forward on this? John, Paul, then Rachel. Yeah. So I think we are in a dilemma because whilst you have a time. Uh, chair to in, you know to look at the new clause that the minister has produced. Uh, what we did in two lines, the minister has took a page to do. Now that might be a good thing, but there might be a sub clause in that amendment that I don't like, and I just have not had the time to look at it. 
Now, I reserve my judgment until I get to the floor of the Assembly uh, and to vote on these clauses and these amendments. But here lies that problem, because if they have been, and they know they have, they have been looking in on this committee through its deliberations for months. And did they not think that we were determined enough to bring forward this amendment on Operation Encompass? I just, if they think that we weren't determined enough, I don't know where they've been. So this is one, one example, I agree entirely with the Deputy Chair, this is one where they could have come early on. I know legislative process, and I know there's a poker game to play in some aspects, but if they really wanted to take ownership of their own bill, and they really wanted to move forward in a spirit of compromise and partnership, really this is the one that they could have come much earlier to us. And says, yep, we, we measure and have assessed the the determination within the committee, uh, and so here we're going to work with you. They didn't do that. They failed to do that, in fact. They failed to do that. Uh, so I think, yes, we, we move, we, we lodge our, uh, our amendment, and then the intent of moving it, and then uh, if this is passed, again, the danger is I don't know the exact impact of this new clause, because I haven't had the time to digest it. It's a page long. So uh, I'm taking it on your word, Chair, that this is a better clause than our own, which is good and to be welcomed if that is the case. But I, as an individual MLA, don't, haven't had time to see that yet. So uh, it's nearly too late in the day to ask this committee to support anything. Uh, but I, I will take your, your judgment on this and... When we get to the floor of the assembly, then it's anything and everything goes with regards to votes. I'll leave it there, Chair. Okay. Rachel. Thanks, Chair. I think this is going to be one of a number of issues that could have been brought much, much earlier by the department. And like Deputy Chair, we would have we had had this signed off months ago because it was brought up from day one. My concern, like Paul's, is does this amendment do? what ours does, or, you know, that this, this, the, this, this amendment, and again, like Paul, I briefly read it, because it came, you know, two days ago, mm -hmm. uh, a week before we were supposed to, you know, come to a position and vote on it, and two days before this meeting, but this is obviously in a response to our amendment, um, and my reading of the new clause is that it does the same thing of ours. It brings it gives the power to bring regulations. Does this plug the gap? What is the gap? I'm still waiting on, and like, like Linda, I'm still waiting on an answer of what this legislative gap actually is. And I can't come to a, you know, a position on the, new, on the minister's amendment, and I would certainly be... Um, in support of us continuing with ours, because what is the difference between ours and the minister's? If ours does the same thing, why, you know, what, what's the need? Um, and we haven't had um, any time to scrutinise it, and it's a one, two, three, four, seven line explanatory note on the letter that we have received from the minister. So um certainly be happy to press ahead with buddies. Sinead Bradley. Yeah, thank you, Chair. Um 
just reflecting back, you know, we did spend a lot of time on this issue and it, and it was a huge agreement on it. But the further the more detailed we proposed to be, it appeared that we were getting uh, beyond scope. Mm -hmm. And I think we arrived at our um, amendment the way it is for a good reason. And I'm just trying to work through the procedure now. So I can't make a determination at this moment in time. Um, I understood our amendment. I don't know what the ministers bring that's added value, and I don't know if that additional context considered its scope. So the process now will be the marshal list of amendments, which I understand will have a legal eye cast over that, where the speaker then will make a determination of what can come in to the floor, is that right? And so, so at that point, can we assume that if the minister's amendment made it to the floor, that it has been determined that it can um, be discussed at that point. I, I just want to get it over the line at this point. I think committee members are right, you know, to, to raise their um, despair, really, at how it's come about. But I think right now, under the pressure of the time remaining, um, I just want to find out logistically how do we get it across the line. Yeah, um, well, I suppose procedurally, the committee's amendments are in, so they're, they're tabled. Um, we'll find out today if this, or, um, I think it's later today, the Speaker will have ruled on all the amendments. Um, so we'll know if our committee amendment has been selected. I suppose it's only at that point we'll know if the Minister's amendment has also been selected. Um, and procedurally then, um, I've been advised that it would be the Minister's amendment on this Operation Encompass that would be taken before the committee's. Now that would leave committee members then, you know, in a position where to get to the committee amendment, we need to vote down the minister's amendment, um, and I suppose that puts members in a dilemma. You know, is what the the minister seeking to do uh, in line with what we are seeking to do? Now, I've been told by the bill officer, uh, the bill clerk that's advised the committee, this does, and it's more comprehensive. Now, granted, that's just what I've been informed, and we as a committee haven't been able to interrogate the legislative text in a way that you would have had the department produce this um, during the normal phase of the, the committee scrutiny stage. That That's a decision that the, the, the minister and the department took. Um, that's up to them, but it does leave members in a, in a dilemma. Um, but again... That's going to be an issue. I don't know if the Minister's amendment, nor indeed if the Committee's amendment on Operation Encompass is going to be selected. I think ours is much easier to get in, in my opinion, than the Minister's. And if that's the case, then this is a mute point. And at that stage, at further consideration stage, then the Minister, which is the normal protocol, um, would then bring forward a uh, tidying up amendment so it achieves what we want as a committee in line with the amendment passed by the Assembly. Um, so it, it's not helpful though if both amendments get selected by the Speaker, what members are then going to do. And in all of this, and at this point I think I, I would make to some other amendments, the strength of a committee is in a committee acting in unison. When a committee breaks away from that, then it dilutes the strength of a committee and that would be something that the Department would look at for future bills. You know, that they know that there's an ability to, to get cracks between us. And there are some aspects of committee amendments that I, on balance, maybe wouldn't have supported, but there were other amendments that I wanted to get through and other members may not have supported, and we, we reached a consensus amongst all of us. 
Um, and that's just something to say now in, in anticipation of some of these other amendments to discuss. But I'm not sure, Sinead, that you know, procedurally that's the way it will be dealt with. Speaker will decide if the amendments are admissible. If both are admissible, it's the Minister's amendment that comes first. Uh, and I'm not clear just at this stage then what we as a committee you know, would do because we're meeting today. This is on Tuesday. We won't have a committee position. Then it's up to individual members. Are you going to vote for the Minister's Amendment or do you vote for the Committee Amendment? And that'll mean voting down the Minister's Amendment. Yeah. Um, so can I just say, on that point, I, I don't think we're in the Committee's in a position today to, to come to a committee view on it. You know, we all maybe need to go up and satisfy ourselves that the assertion is right our <coughs> amendment and some more. And if that's the case, you know, and there's, there is added value to it, then um, I suppose maybe members who are satisfied that that's the case may be satisfied to support it, but it's just yet yeah, it's, it's it's not really a, a nice way to do business at the moment. Yeah, certainly not, Paul. There is another way, and if the minister values the special relationship with its committee, then there's no reason why the department can't withdraw this, or not move it, and give this committee warning that they're not going to move it. Allow or amendment to proceed and then there's nothing to stop the department admitting and moving this new clause which they have produced a further consideration stage. By that stage the committee will have formed a view. I was actually going to ask Chair is that something that can be done that the department can be asked to to do that? I know it will then be up to the minister and the department but none of that precludes the minister from getting her amendment in because we're we're now saying that, you know that, that is how we intend to proceed. We we don't have any difficulties, but it it sounds like a better way forward than the committee dividing on something that is their own amendment, effectively. So members, yes, I'm sure that we could ask that. The question for members of the committee would then be if the minister if her amendment is selected, but decides I'm not doing that, then. What does the committee members and parties do at that stage? And that's me starting to move into something that's not my responsibility, yeah. what so, a party does. So the danger here for the department is this. If we were to vote down that, which we think is a perfectly good amendment by the department, if we vote that down and then support our own, the minister won't be able to move this at further consideration stage. No, well, no, that, that's not right in the sense that at further consideration stage, you can bring forward amendments so long as it's in line with the amendment that was passed. So, you know, the Minister can bring forward an amendment um, because it's, again, it's a clarifying more what the Assembly has, a, has agreed. So this wouldn't, the Minister's amendment not being passed and ours being passed would not then stop either the Department or this committee because we now have the legislative yeah, yeah. text. Yeah. Can, so, I, can I make a suggestion based on that? That if the minister does not withdraw her amendment, and this is, this is a position, I'm, I'm trying to get to a point where we have a committee position on this, yeah. is really where I'd like to be, because our amendment is a committee amendment, and I don't want us to now divide on it. So could we request that the minister withdraw her amendment with a view to putting it in as a tidy and up at further consideration? If she doesn't withdraw it, we do vote it down. We support our own amendment. And... We said to the minister, but we are content for this to be part of the tidying up process 
at further consideration. So we're not ruling out that it will will come in at a further stage because I want to get a committee position without cutting off our nose to spider face. Yep. Um, Christine, can I just check with you? Is that the conversation that you've had that if our amendment gets passed, that this could then be brought forward at further consideration stage by either the committee or the minister? Um, I haven't had a conversation about whether that particular text can. Um, the position is that uh, amendments can go in at further consideration stage to tidy up or improve the text um, of amendments that have been made or clause provisions that are now in the bill as long as you're not changing the intent. So when the House agrees um, on the intent of something, then at further consideration stage you can't change that intent but you can tidy up, improve. So I suppose if I'm looking at the committee amendment, the intent is very clear. You want to provide for the PSNI to be able to contact schools. Um, our amendment is quite small. It doesn't set out a lot of detail. Um, my assumption would be if the assembly supports that intent and makes the provision, then that could then be tidied up or improved at further consideration stage as long as you're not going against that intent so you couldn't i think put down an amendment at further consideration stage that would revert that intent but you could improve on it whether that would include all of the text of of the minister's amendment i don't know we'd, ha we'd have to take advice on that but you could improve you can improve on the drafting of amendments at further consideration stage as long as you don't change the intent that the House has agreed to. Okay, our members' intent then, sorry, I'm just looking at Sinead, I think, is that you coming in, yeah? I'm a bit cautious about that because without understanding fully the Minister's intent, is there a danger of us throwing out something that can't then, you know, that may really have an added value? Is there a danger that we're throwing out something that there's no way back in with? Veronica is, is sitting there. Um, Veronica, do you want to come in now, having heard the, the debate um, around what the Minister's amendment on this is trying to do and what the committee amendment was trying to do? I'm not sure if um, Dr. Holland sure, can, I? can be brought into the spotlight by the broadcasting team. Can I quickly clarify something just for Sinead? Yes, go ahead. Sinead, if the Minister doesn't bring her amendment forward, if, if our amendment was to go through on Tuesday and the Minister doesn't bring her amendment, she just says, that's okay, your amendment's went, I'm not going to do this, we can, as a committee, we can take that text and bring it forward as a committee ourselves at further consideration stage. So we don't lose it, is what I'm, is it, but I understand where you're- if, But only following from what Christine said, Linda, but only if we're not introducing a new idea. And we're not. And are we satisfied that there is no novel new, uh, because the talking about the legal advice so far, or the advice so far, is that this goes beyond what we do. Well, what is that piece that goes beyond? And can that, 
be injected in in a later stage out of fear that it may not be. There could be something in that that would actually change the intent of that cause. So until I fully understand it, I'm cautious about dismissing it. Uh, but, but yet, through the chair, that's one of the reasons why you shouldn't vote for it, because if we're not sure, uh, we need, we need yeah. time. Uh, and with, with the Minister not moving this on Tuesday, it gives the committee time. And you know something, if this is the best amendment that the, the Department of Justice have ever created, I support it 100% of further consideration stage, and the Minister's name can be all over it. Rachel, and then I'll come to Dr Holland. Thank you. Sorry, again, just to tease this out, and, and back to my, my first point, these amendments to me both do the same thing. They're both trying to provide a structured framework to enable the detail to be set out in regulations. We're not actually plugging any gap here. We're making provision for a gap to be plugged. So surely anything, regardless if it's ours or the minister's, regulations still have to be laid to this effect. So what is the substantive difference? I don't see it. Because again, we still don't have the answer on what legislation it is that is, there, there is a gap there in. We still don't know. So until I can be told what that is, the two are the, the same thing. And that's a fair point. Dr Holland. Can you hear me? I can indeed, yes. Thank you, Veronica. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And um, thanks, Chair, for the opportunity to bring the committee in relation to this. I suppose the one thing that I would want to say at the outset is that we have never at any point um, intended to be disrespectful towards the committee, and we have been very clear that uh, it was very much a desire for this provision to be introduced. We were of the view, and um, of the view that we were not convinced that this would be deemed to be within scope, and is why we hadn't brought this provision forward. The intention had been very much. Um, to bring this forward through another legislative vehicle. That is why we haven't got to something at an earlier stage for giving the committee amendment. Our view was that, um, in, in terms of the scope of it, we think it's quite restrictive um, and may not necessarily give us all of the um, enabling provisions in terms of how the detail and the regulations are located. So, for example, references to the schools. Our services were also have to cover further education colleges. That reference to schools wouldn't be sufficient in that respect. So, that's an example of some of the, the aspects where we would be of the view that the, the committee and the may not could do what we needed to do. In terms of the legislative gap piece, um, our apologies again for this. I thought we had made this clear in, in both the letter that had been sent in relation to these amendments on earlier correspondence. Essentially, all of the legislation that is there at the moment in relation to information sharing for the purposes of the scheme such as this relates to child protection and child safeguarding. The purpose of an operation encompass um, approach is for child well-being. So it's, a, it's about kind of the needs of the, the child. If, if they come to school and, for example, don't have their uniform or um, you know, key is missing or they're particularly distressed, it's about enabling the school to be able to like that or to be made aware of um, the incident that has happened and take account of that in, in terms of the treatment of the child. So essentially there is no legislation available at the moment, and this has been checked by both police, um, our own legal advisors, and also advice was taken by the safeguarding board. There isn't legislation available at the moment that will allow this information to be shared for child wellbeing purposes. It could only be shared if it was for child protection purposes, and operation encompasses is not about child protection, because obviously the, um, the police have been involved at that stage and what have you. So 
Just on a procedural point, if the department's amendment is voted down, then the assembly will vote on the committee amendment and approve it. So therefore, it can come back at further consideration stage. It's a, you know, that, that's the purpose of the further consideration stage. Um, and at that point, then the department can again bring forward this amendment to, to provide the further clarity. And as you said, um, wasn't embellish, I can't remember the exact turn of phrase that you, you used, but give it the meaning and the aim that is desired. Um, okay. Should it be committee's preference? We're obviously more than happy to have that discussion with the minister. Should there be a desire to move the committee amendment at the committee stage and for our amendment to be brought up for the consideration stage if that is deemed to be procedurally more appropriate? Well, I suppose the committee amendment is in, it's, it's being moved. You know, we're, we're not, not moving it in that respect. It's, it's your call as a department as to whether or not you're going to move your own amendment. Um, we'll have to decide uh, as members whether we're going to vote it down um, for a whole variety of reasons, but then we're voting for our own amendment. And you know, the amendment that the committee is putting in is to give the department power for the regulations, and it's in those regulations that you can then bring forward all of this detail. So that that's... I think the problem that members have to face, there's there's nothing in our amendment, um, as I see it, that presents a problem. Um, I take the point around schools and colleges, but I'm almost, again, I'm not advising the Assembly from a legal point of view, but you know, the Assembly passes the committee amendment. I don't see why it then couldn't pass this at further consideration stage in terms of what the department has done, if we think that that's actually the best vehicle for it. Members mightn't think that. Um, Sinead, your, your hand is up. Uh, is that to come in at this point? Yeah. Yes, Chair. Um, you're saying that our committee has moved already. Is, is that technically true? You know, I know we've submitted, but is it not on, at that point at which in the assembly floor you stand up as Chair to actually move it? Is that the point when it's technically moved? From a procedural point of view, I, I need to move the amendment, but at the committee has agreed the committee amendments. They're in the chairman's name, so therefore they're all being moved by me. What we would need to do now is, are, as a committee, are we not going to move it? That, that would be a, another... The decision has been taken that all of these amendments are being moved. It would be now, in light of the minister's amendment, that the committee would need to agree for me not to move it. Yeah, sorry, Paul Frey. Yeah, if Shinny is finished... I don't want to step in. Uh, so, so here's the danger. We have spent months producing our report that we will give to the floor of that assembly, and it will count for nothing if we do not do what it says on the on the tin on that report. We have we have we have spent a long time putting these. Now I'm not precious about amendment or a committee amendment or a minister's amendment. I'm not. But every every point that Fronick argued there and made. Uh, around uh, you know the the detail and, and and putting the detail in on colleges and further education and setting out the parameters for regulation, that can all be done at further consideration stage. All be done, and I'm not 100% sure, chair, about whether you can bring an, an amendment that has been voted down in the floor of the assembly verbatim again. You may have to tweak it technically, and it might be, but but if you vote something down in word. 
I'm not sure you can bring it back at further consideration stage, even if it's to strengthen another amendment that has been passed. I would worry about that, and I don't know that the Department of Justice should take that chance. They're putting members of this committee in a very bad position because we may well have to vote down something that we actually want to see. I'm not sure yet because I haven't had time to look at it, but that would be horrendous, a horrendous position to place members in. Yeah, but even if you look, members, at the, the, the Department's Amendment 24B3, regulations under this section may contain provision. You know, we've empowered through our amendment the regulations to do that. So, you know, yeah, anyway, I think we've exhausted in terms of the, the, this issue. Procedurally, the, the Speaker will, will decide if the Department's Amendment is going to be admissible, as it will decide if ours is admissible. Advice I'm getting is ours more is more likely than the department's, but listen, that's that's up to the speaker now at this stage. So some of this debate, like we've had for months now, could be at at naught. Rachel, just a small point. Um, I mean, if there's there's obviously if there'd be a point today issue about the colleges there. If ours passes, there's nothing to stop us bringing a, a technical amendment back at further consideration stage. I'm sure it would have been would have been more beneficial for the department to do that tidying up if there was an issue with ours, but. Um, I mean, there's nothing to stop us adding in colleges and, and making reference to what a pupil is and what a student is, if that's the issue with, with ours. We, we still can do that. That's certainly my understanding of how the procedures work. So, But you know, I, I'm, I am more amenable to, to what Linda suggested, that there's a point here where, as a committee, we've put down an amendment. That's the committee's amendment that's there. Um, and that can be refined at further consideration stage. You know, for, uh, the committee can't take a view as to the, the competence and, and effectiveness of the Minister's amendment because of the way in which the Department decided to handle this issue. Um, so we can't reach a view on the Minister's amendment, um, but we know what our amendment's trying to do, and it can then be finessed at the further consideration stage, which is the normal process. That's the normal process for legislation. What the minister's doing is up to the minister to do in terms of what they have decided, but that's the way we're trying to do this is the normal way that things are usually done. So the committee is still for us to move, me to move then this amendment. Obviously, when it comes to the minister's amendment, we can ask the minister not to move it. Um, and to bring forward a refining amendment at further consideration stage. If the Minister doesn't do that, we now have the legislative text if we wish to use it and incorporate that into a further consideration stage amendment, and that will address these issues. Um, but obviously, members, should both amendments be selected, then we need to know as MLAs what we're doing. There's probably conversations that will need to happen in advance of Tuesday between the parties around that. I certainly lean towards the suggestion that we have to, to work together as a committee on this and um, I'm reluctant to vote for the Minister's Amendment without having at any time interrogated whatsoever. Um, and that would lead me to the view of voting it down and then voting for the committee amendment and then refining it at further consideration stage. That's where I would be in terms of the travel of direction. Okay, members, any other comments? Members, no? Okay, let's 
we'll get Operation Encompass sorted out. The last thing is achieved. It will be done. There's been more conversation around Operation Encompass than that. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, guidance on data collection. The Minister's in agreement with the committee. There you go. Um, so that's good to, good to know. Training. So the Minister doesn't support the, the committee's amendment relating to the provision of training and is bringing forward an alternative amendment to place the duty for training on the police and the PPS for their staff rather than the department. The text of the Minister's amendment um, has been provided. It provides for the PSNI and the PPS to provide such tra training as they consider appropriate for their personnel and the department to do likewise for staff within the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service. The Department Amendment members does not cover subsections 2 to 4 of the Committee Amendment, um, which provides for annual training, mandatory training for all those involved in the disposal of domestic abuse cases, in policing and criminal justice agencies, and reporting on the uptake of training by each relevant organisation at the end of each year. The Minister has highlighted that the Interpretation Act uh, 1954 requires that where there is a duty in legislation, that it shall be performed from time to time. She's also included some of the intent of the reporting requirement provided by subsection 4 of the committee amendment in her alternative amendment covering the reporting of the offence, um, which will be, will be discussed next. So subsections 1 and 2 of the Minister's amendment better reflects the intention of subsection 1 of the committee uh, amendment. Um, so, members, if there's... Any information that you're needing from Veronica, you're happy to take a view then um, in terms of what it should do. Let me make a recommendation on this one, maybe again, that the committee would go with committee amendment and the text of subsection 1 could then be improved at further consideration stage, either by the department or by the committee, so that we, we stick with our amendment and if we want to refine it, we can refine it. Yeah. It doesn't cover the mandatory and the annual, and that's my. I may again said it. Whatever my personal view is on that, the committee reached a position, and I, I'm going to stick with the committee position on that. Yeah, the chair. The, the, it's the principle, same principle as the conversation we just had. We produced a report. The report is what guides the assembly. Members who don't have the privilege of sitting this committee, so we have we have we have spent a long time deliberating and getting to a position, a compromise position. Uh, a collegiate position. There should be no way that the department or any minister or anybody else for that matter should try and knock that asunder. And uh, the principle stands, we haven't the time as a committee to get a collegiate view on an amendment. So why, why should we have to be pressurised within days of this coming to the floor? Okay. People are happy then. We'll go with our own committee amendment and then if needs be we can look at it at further consideration. In independent oversight. The Minister um, doesn't support the committee amendment providing for independent oversight. While she agrees there's a need for oversight and scrutiny of how the offence operates, she believes it's an important both current and future oversight functions and financial resource implications. She considers the committee amendment is akin to a domestic abuse commissioner in uh, all uh, but name. So obviously, members, that's the Minister's position. I don't agree with it. Um, but listen, that's again a prerogative of the Minister to, to give her reasons. I'll be outlining on behalf of the committee what it is trying to do and why the committee has supported it. If we'd have wanted a domestic abuse commissioner, we would have called it a domestic abuse commissioner and tried to give it the powers, but 
you know, again, we're operating within the scope of the bill and we're trying to do something that provides that level of oversight. But listen, that's the Minister's outlined her position. Um, report on the operation of the Act. So, the Minister agrees with the Committee on the need for information to be provided in relation to the operation of the offence but intends to bring forward an alternative amendment to the Committee's amendment relating to reporting on the operation of the Act to remove the ongoing duty on the Department to report uh, which she considers inappropriate uh, once the offence is fully bedded in. text of the Minister's amendment has been provided. Um, it provides for a reporting period of not less than two years and not more than three years, beginning with the day in which this part comes into operation, as determined by the Department of Justice. So, having looked at it, the Minister's amendment broadly covers the Committee's in intention. It appears to cover the elements listed in the Committee amendment, um, whilst trying to better capture how data is recorded and tracked. And the key difference, as I see it, um, relates to the obligation of the Department no more than two years after commencement, and then at intervals of not more than three years provided for by the committee. Um, there's also some other differences. The committee amendment asks for the average length of time, that's in 2C, and the department amendment covers the typical length of time. I'm not sure the difference between average, typical. Um, in addition, the reference in 3 in the committee amendment on collecting distinct statistics is not present in the department's amendment. Rachel? Thanks, Chair. Just want to clarify on this again, because we've only seen it. Um, is this the minister and the department saying that they will prepare one report? Because that's my reading of it, again, very briefly. But if this is for the department to prepare one report after three years of embedding in the offence, and that's it. I don't think that's um, what certainly what we had intended, which is reporting, continuous reporting, longer-term reporting. Um, so I'm not too sure. Just uh, maybe we could get some clarity on that, as if that's an ongoing report or a one report. Okay. So, Dr. Holland, do you want to just? Clarify for us that that issue. Yes, we can. And um, it would be one report as you notice removing the, the ongoing requirement. I think the concern there is in relation to you know, that type of continuous ongoing reporting in relation to offences isn't done for any other offence. Um, you know, the reason that was set going forward. Um, information and data on, on the, the key elements that are, are referred to in the reporting provision um, will continue to be provided in terms of kind of the analysts from what have you that organisations would um, kind of be looking at providing on, on the context of um, information that the department can provide in relation to offences. It's um, the issue really is around that wider reporting element. Um, as I say, once the offences have been in, Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, suppose members, the key point there is around the report aspect of it. You know, the the arguments around being different to other offences. That was an argument made around the independent oversight in the minister's letter as well. So. Um, 
So, members, in, in, in terms of how the committee can proceed with, with this, uh, again, we can, we can go forward with our amendment. Um, I do think, and we have it now, uh, some of the, the department's amendment in terms of how it more accurately collects data and tracks it, I think, has merit. So that is something that the department can bring forward at further consideration stage. The problem, as I see it, with the department's amendment, core aim of the committee's amendment is this reporting aspect. And if the assembly didn't pass that um, and went for the minister's amendment, then you wouldn't be able to put that in at further consideration stage because that's going to not be the core aim, potentially, as I think is a risk. Linda, were you wanting to come in there? Are you um, no. I th Okay, I suppose it comes back to the, the issues that we have with all of the other ones. It's, it's that inability to yep. fully scrutinise and then that concern around whether the committee's aims are going to be met by the, by the, the Minister's amendments. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the Minister's amendments. They may well be actually, and we've, we've said this even around the, the Operation Encompass one to be fair, they may well be better than the committee's, but we don't know. And you know, I can see sensible reasons and merit why why you know the, the department have potentially, for example, looked at the reporting period and said not less than two, not more than three is actually more doable, more practical, will give will give us better information. And so so I think that and I mean Veronica can speak for the department, I'm sure she doesn't even speak for her, but so I, I can see merit in, in things like that. And it would jump out at you, make you think. But that's what the purpose of it was. But I just don't think we've had enough time to to come to a committee position. And back to the same point, I don't want us to move forward not as a committee united in relation to these amendments because if we're going to go down that road. Are we saying that all of the amendments that the more or less that's what we're saying at this stage? If we're if we're going to go for what the minister's asking us to do. That all of the committee's amendments were a waste of time. They're wrong. They weren't um, the best vehicle. And what was all of that not doing? And that's I'm, I'm a bit concerned about that too. Obviously. That's yeah. Okay. So are members content that when it comes to this one that we stick with the committee amendment that'll yeah. be moved? Um, this one again, I'm assuming the minister's amendment will come first. So there's a an issue there of we're going to have to dispose of the minister's amendment and then go for the committee amendment. Um, members will note the marshal list has just been published. Yep. So the issue around um, the issue around the operation encompasses a actual a, a real one now because it has been selected the ministers and the committees. Um, so both of those are going to be on the on the agenda. <laughs> and, and let me emphasise, chair. There is real grave risk here by the department in doing what they've done. They've waited too long to, to engage with the committee and they've went too soon with regards to stages of legislation. Yeah. Okay, well listen, I, I'm, I'm of the view that we, we stick together um, in terms of the committee's amendment on this. The reporting aspect of it, key problem with the department is it removes the... Uh, the the reporting criteria that we've put in, uh, and that, that for me is, is not in line with what the committee wanted to do, so therefore the committee um, needs to go with the committee amendment on that one, and then at further consideration stage, the department can bring forward amendment uh, to tidy up on that one.
Uh, are members content then with that? Okay. Uh, Veronica, can I thank you very much for, for joining with us? Um, as always, your time's appreciated for the committee. Sorry. All right, thank you. Sorry. Chair, just, um, just on the, the minister had brought another amendment, one that's not appearing on this letter, dated the first, but had brought and, and now says on the marshal list on clause nine, which I find quite surprising. And given that I had intended and published my amendments on clause nine on Monday, and the day after the department or the Clause 9 amendment from the Minister appears, which was my, my understanding from this committee's lengthy deliberations on Clause 9, that there was no intention of moving any amendments on Clause 9 coming from the Minister of the Department. So I'm just wondering what changed between the letter dated the 1st of November, my submission of amendments on Clause 9 on Monday the 2nd, which led to the submission of Clause 9 amendments on Tuesday the 3rd, and that doesn't appear in this letter, because the committee has not had time to scrutinise the Minister's amendments on Clause 9, which are not the same as mine. Something that, no doubt, I will be raising on Tuesday, but I think it would be good, just in the spirit of this conversation that we've had, um, on the department having a number of amendments that we didn't get to see or have time to deliberate, that actually this letter is not the full picture. Not sure, Veronica, if you're able to enlighten the committee on that. Sure, I suppose on the way there should be a separate letter sent to the committee in relation to that provision. And I suppose, you know, we, we had it aired before we chose them.
Rachel. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Veronica, for that. Um, I'm just wondering then, why was the decision... Sorry, just the last conversation that we had where there was an admittance on the behalf of the department that the discussion that we'd had, and notably myself and Paul, on this provision, and we'd gone at, as you know, we'd gone at it for a number of, of sessions on this in great detail, um, and that there was no need for this, it was fine, it was covered. There was, it came back then with further information that actually the information that the committee had been given was wrong clarified that we still didn't need it and the committee agrees to its report. There's no indication from the minister of the department that they would be moving anything like this. I certainly haven't had sight of any letter regarding clause nine. Um, I'm not too sure if, if the chair, deputy chair have at all, but um, I'm seeing shaking heads. So I, I certainly haven't seen it. And it would have been, even if the committee hadn't seen it, the fact that myself and Paul Frey have continuously raised this, it could have been something that was discussed. So it, I, I'm wondering when, when the decision was taken to table an amendment, also the fact that this amendment is actually different than mine, it also adds in more restrictions rather than less um, in terms of the residence um, aspect of it. And the committee has been given absolutely no information on this at all from the minister of the department in the letter dated the 1st of November. So if the, if the amendment had been written and decided upon by the department before the 1st and not in reaction to an amendment that I had made very clear that I was bringing, even though we had been told that it made no substantial difference to the legislation and no safeguards were there, when was, that, when was that particular amendment drafted and why did we not get any information on this on the letter of the 1st of November? Or if it had been realised that we didn't get any information on the 1st of November, are we getting it now only because I raised it on the 5th? The letter of relations that was the letter of information in relation to that a follow-up to information that the committee had sought on the earlier sessions in relation to the parental responsibility exclusion. So there are two elements to that letter. It was drafted before the minister's letter. Um, I, I, I can only apologise if that, that hasn't reached the committee, but it was done about at an earlier date. And that earlier letter covers, as I say, the committee at one of the earlier sessions had said they want further information in relation to the parental responsibility exclusion ahead of taking a decision in relation to that. It was felt that the the session of that last been discussed after the government's sufficient time. So there's a letter coming out, and in that letter, we were also making reference to the fact that further consideration had been given to the issue that has been raised in relation to this. So those two elements were dealt with in the one letter that is prepared ahead of the one that um, has been sent by the, the minister. I'm, I'm not sure why the, the committee haven't received that. I'm sorry, that can be looked into. Apologies in, in, in terms of the committee not, not having that information, but the, the letter was. Thanks, Chair. Um, I would, I'm just wondering when we requested further information on parental alienation from the department because we squared that circle off in the committee report. It wasn't in relation to parental alienation, it was in relation to the reduction in the parental responsibility exclusion in one of the, the earlier sessions. I, I can't remember the, the date of it. Reference was made in the amendments of the proceedings that the committee wanted further information to allow it to consider if, if the issue around um, the child protection provisions being put in the child guilty offence, 
and then the proposed allowance, the kind of responsibility exclusion needed for that would be reduced from under 18 to under 16. Uh, one of the sessions the committee had indicated they wanted further information in relation to that to allow them to make a, a, a more informed position in relation to that particular amendment. Which is close. So it, it's not parental it's not the right kind of delineation, it's parental responsibility exclusion. Okay, apologies. Sorry, I'm I'm deaf in my left ear, so apologies that if I picked you up wrong just on that one. Um, I'm did, did have we received any letter regarding clauses eleven and seventeen then with regard to parental responsibility and the changing the child protection legislation? No, we didn't. Okay. Clauses eleven and clauses eleven and thirteen. And Sorry, thirteen. Those amendments are dying. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Sorry, Rachel has picked up something on clause, yeah, nine. Oh, it is 11 and 17, sorry. No, we no. haven't seen any letter. We'll double check our records, but okay. I'm not aware of any letter coming in. Chair, if I request that, that information is sent to committee members sort of as soon as, as soon as possible, given that consideration stage is in less than a week. And I, yeah. Thank you, appreciate that. Um, I would also, I suppose if there's any follow-up information in terms of the um, the wording of the minister's amendment on clause nine and the um, why, why it's worded like that, why is it not the direct copy of Scotland, um, and why is there um, restrictions put on it in terms of residence about where the child must live? Um, I could get into oh, yeah. another the conversation about that. The slightly different wording will reflect the draft person's individual style. Um, and in terms of the residence condition, about having to live with one or other individual, that provision is also in the Scottish version, so it will reflect then um, that aspect. Okay. Um, Chair, fairly obviously. I will not be supporting the Minister's Amendment on Tuesday um, and I will be attempting to move my own. So yeah, just it. Chair, on that, on the point around Clause 9 and again, the, the Department and the Minister in front may well have been trying to be helpful in this regard, but there, have, there was no indication throughout whenever we were uh, raising this issue time and time again and we spent a lot of time mm -hmm. and we held up the committee a lot on this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and I certainly gave the time, uh, the, the, the commitment at the time that I was content with regards to the uh, changes and the amendments in the. Yep. Now, again, this might be good, I, but I don't know, and I haven't had the time to digest this, and the committee surely will not have the time to digest it. So we'll begin in here on the floor of the Assembly as individual MLAs, and again, whilst we've been surprised with regards to these new amendments, the department's just going to have to wait to see what we do. My clarification in relation to the EFM point. Yes, please, Dr. Holland. Um, that provision has been, we obviously, as part of the earlier discussions, have given an assurance to the committee that the amendment will be to the expanded financial memorandum to deal with the awareness of the child. When we look at the text of the expanded memorandum, it makes explicitly clear in relation to it. It's not part of the bill and it's going for information. We were therefore concerned in terms of kind of robustness around being able to address that point to the committee in, in terms of it being in the expanded memorandum as opposed to on the face of the bill. So 
it's for that reason that we've included that provision in the case of the bill rather than putting it within an expanded memorandum. Yep, which is exactly what Paul Frew and others had asked for and was told not needed. It was in the EFM, and that's why the committee then agreed with the department's position on it. And now we're being told it needs to be in primary legislation, despite repeatedly the department saying, "No, guys, don't worry about this. Not necessary, but we can change it in the EFM." I would, Chair, just I would certainly welcome if there is um, requests going to the minister to remove or not move her uh, amendments for other things that that also applies to clause nine. I would certainly welcome the committee's support on my own amendment, um, of course, um, and we'll be making the case for that on Tuesday. And if there are specific wording issues, such as the style of the amendment drafter, that need to go in. There is always further consideration stage to strengthen the legislation by the Minister. Yeah, and I just echo my point that the Department have been too late to come to, with the, to these conclusions with this committee and have went too early with regards to the procedures of legislation. Okay, Dr. Holland, thank you. I know um, you're trying to head this up as a civil servant in the department, and some of this frustration is for the minister and not for you to take. So um, I don't wish to. You've been nothing but helpful to the committee in, in that respect in trying to provide answers to us, but there is definitely a major problem with the department has went about its business and the tactics that Our apologies in, in terms of we, we understood that we were being helpful by bringing it forward at consideration stage as opposed to that the further consideration stage and the committee is quite clear that, that some of this should have been for further consideration stage and say we were bringing it forward at this stage to, to be helpful and, and giving us an indication of that at this point in the process of the Well, you, I don't know the answer to this, but maybe it is the case that you may not be able to bring the minister's amendment, amendment five, clause nine, at further consideration stage. That it needs to be done at consideration stage. Um, that's probably the dilemma that the department faces. Um, I think for some of the, the aspects, there, there, it's obviously something we would want to seek legal advice on, but I think there is potentially some of the difference between the amendments. If an aspect is, is, is brought forward and approved by the House, for Stephanie to come down to give us a little bit more assurance on some of the decisions that we're taking. So I'm going to go into closed session now in order for Stephanie to give us some questions for us. So um, we'll go into closed session and then come back out into public for the rest of the business. Okay, members. Um, item. Okay, members. Um, item.
seven then on the agenda, the carriage of explosives regulations, uh, 151 to 163. The department's proposing a stat rule to correct um, Northern Ireland legislation that would otherwise cease to function properly at the end of the EU exit transition period in relation to the carriage of explosives. The proposed rule ensures that the carriage of explosive regulation 2010 continues to operate as before by ensuring that the regulatory framework for the carriage of Class 1 goods remain in place. The 2010 regulations implemented the EU's Dangerous Goods Directive relating to Class 1 goods, including international carriage by road and rail. The directive is not listed within Annex 2 to the Northern Ireland Protocol and so will not extend to Northern Ireland at the end of the transition period. Instead, the UK is committed to implementing the requirements of pre-existing European agreements and conventions that were implemented within the Dangerous Goods Directive. The rule will not change the requirement for those involved in the carriage of explosives by road and rail within Northern Ireland. <clears throat> the Department has indicated that no consultation has taken place as it is not a requirement of, EU, uh, of the EU Withdrawal Act 2018. Uh, the rule is subject to draft affirmative resolution procedure and it comes into operation the day it is affirmed by the Assembly. The Department aims to have these provisions in place at the end of the transition period. So it's whether members have any further information on this. Gemma Dolan. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, I am content, but I just want clarity on one point. Will this SR ensure continued alignment with all regulations in relation to the carriage of dangerous goods, or will there be any gaps? Okay, um, I'll hold that for you and bring in Sinead. Yeah, Chair, just for your information, uh, you'd be pleased to know I did have queries in this which I raised with the clerk and the department did bring me back answers which I'm satisfied with. It was about whether it would um, have effect on north-south crossing or I, I was just curious to know whether oxygen tanks would come under um, this, but it doesn't. I think it's category two, so thank you. Okay, and let me just check. Um Christine, do you, are you able to advise Jen on that, or is that something we need to go back to the department on? We need to go back to the department. Okay, well, if you're happy, Gemma, we'll go back to the department to get clarity on that. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, we'll, we'll go back to the department and get clarity on that, and then we can pick it up again. Item 8, um, counter-terrorism bill, just a, an update. Um, at our meeting on the 15th of October, committee considered correspondence from the... Minister of Justice advising that she had received a request from the UK Government to bring forward an LCM um, to oper operationalise the provisions within the counter-terrorism bill, uh, but had concluded, given differing views of the matter, there was insufficient support for either this uh, limited LCM or a full LCM. She's therefore written to the UK Government indicating it wouldn't be possible to secure uh, legislative consent from the Executive for the relevant provisions within the bill. Um, the committee did agree then to write to the Minister of Justice seeking confirmation that she would lay a, a memorandum um, before the Assembly explaining why the LCM was not being sought in accordance with the relevant standing order. We also wrote then to the Parliament, Parliamentar Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Justice, Chris Philp, um, for clarification on how the UK Government was then going to take this matter uh, forward in the absence of an LCM and the committee has received pr procedural advice in respect of the Standing Order 42 and the LCMs at our meeting on the 22nd. The Minister laid the memorandum in the Assembly on the 23rd of October and that can be found in the meeting pack. A response from the Parliamentary Under Secretary for the State of Justice has not yet been received and uh, that is 
being pursued to try and get a response. So members can note the memorandum um, and uh, the position in terms of the response from Mr. Phelps MP. When we get it, then we can pick the issue up again. Members are to note. Number nine. The Department has written advising that the, at the Minister's request, the presiding coroner, Mr Justice Huddleston, has been appointed um, Coroner Patrick uh, McGurgan to the chair of a working group that will explore implications for the justice system in Northern Ireland of commencing Section 49.1 of the Coroners and Justice Act 09. Uh, this provision would amend Section 13 of the Coroners Act of 1959. Uh, which would allow a coroner to hold an inquest into a death abroad where the bo body has been repatriated and is lying in Northern Ireland. Coroners in England and Wales, Scotland and uh, Ireland ha already have jurisdiction to investigate the death occurring abroad. Um, so the working group will provide recommendations to the Minister on practical matters required to ensure the effectiveness of an investigation into a death abroad uh, by the end of January next year and the committee then will be updated on the Minister's decision regarding the commencement uh, of Section 49.1 once she's considered the findings of that working group. So members, that information is there to note, unless there's any further clarity needed, we will duly note it. Number 10, um, the Department has written advising of its intention to undertake an eight-week public consultation on the defence of consent to serious harm for sexual gratification, which is commonly known as the rough sex defence, and has provided a copy of the draft consultation document, which it has worked with an expert reference group to develop. The consultation focuses on the need to, or otherwise, to legislate on this discrete issue. So, members, it's there to note that the consultation um, will take place, and we'll obviously pick the issue up in due course. Okay, thank Correspondence. There's 13 items um, of correspondence in, a, in the meeting pack, one in the table pack. I'll just highlight a couple of them. Um, there's a response from the Minister uh, regarding the introduction of legislation equivalent to Helen's Law. Following the motion that was passed uh, by the Assembly on the 28th of September, the Minister has asked officials to engage with relevant stakeholders, including families, on the most appropriate approach uh, for Northern Ireland, and she will report the outcome of this work to the committee by the end of the year. Um, another item then is uh, the response from the Department to the committee's request for further information on estimated costs in respect of the proposed judicial pension reforms and the response to the McLeod judgment and the rationale for an eight-week consultation period and a response from uh, DOF on whether there is collective approach across the public sector to the judgment and then the plans for a remedy. Department of Justice has outlined the position regarding estimated cost uh, that, uh, and in respect of the consultation period, cites the Stormont House Agreement uh, that determined the maximum time for consultations could be reduced from 12 weeks to 8 weeks. <coughs> Excuse me. The Department of Finance has indicated um, that it has devolved responsibility for public service pensions policy and a collective approach has been discussed and progressed at its collective consultation working group, uh, which is the recognised forum for consultation on public service pension policy, and where each of the devolved schemes is represented. So, therefore, noting um, in terms of that information. Uh, one other item then, the department regarding uh, what directions has been given to the PSNI in respect 
of enforcing COVID-19 regs and whether these can be resourced and are deliverable. The Department advised, given the operational independence of the police, Minister has not given any direction to the PSNI regarding enforcement of COVID-19 regs. The Department has stated that other statutory organisations, such as councils, also have responsibilities for compliance and enforcement, and a strategic enforcement group has been set up by the Executive, and that includes DOJ officials. Uh, it also confirms that the PSNI engage, explain and encourage approaches still in place and it will only enforce where necessary. So again, members, it's there for noting unless there's further information that's required. Um, so members, if you're content, we'll action the other items of correspondence as set out in the cover sheet. Great. I don't have any other business. Is there any other business members have? If not, then our next meeting will be uh, today week, and that's in the Senate chamber. Meeting adjourned. Thank you.